0: You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction story titled, Even the Losers, by today's guest fanfiction author, Elise 51. When he was a boy, after everything, he used to imagine himself alone as a ghost haunting the empty hallways of a manor with no one left to inherit it. Alfred would be long dead, and Bruce would truly be alone. His fingers would trail along every wall, across bookcases, up and down the stairwells, across the grounds against the ancient stone perimeter his ancestors placed to mark off what could be controlled from what could not. His aging body would gradually wear away, step by step, like a wooden imperfection under fine sandpaper. Every little bit of himself... The parts he could stand and all the parts he loathed would be sanded away by every surface of this mausoleum until there'd be nothing left and no one to hold a better memory. Later, this version of himself growing old and fading away to nothing seems foolish because then he knows he will never make it to thirty. He becomes a lone young soldier on a self-imposed suicide mission and he will fight until he can fight no longer. This city might break his body, eat him alive but he makes his peace with the promise to purge Gotham of her sickness one lost soul at a time. His life will be war. However, Dick Grayson, vibrant, resilient, and so much better than Bruce, leaps into his life, sticking the landing with, as Alfred used to say, the utmost panache. This little acrobat, remarkable and unbroken when he should have shattered like Bruce, changes everything. Bruce, 25 years old And certifiably insane by any account Has no choice in the matter This little blue-eyed orphan Was so desolate in the beginning But somehow ever willing to keep moving There are many tears shed And Bruce is terrible with it But he tells Dick how to use his pain Accept his presence As a companion for the rest of his days And Alfred is there in ways Bruce can't And somehow they manage Not to ruin this little boy His sweetness and his strength astound the entire Wayne household, and it might be a tired cliché, but Dick teaches Bruce just as often, perhaps even more, than Bruce teaches Dick. Within a year there is color where there was none. Red, green, and yellow fly through Bruce's darkness. Being a father teaches Bruce the true meaning of exhaustion, but the benefit of receiving Dick's trust, his love, outweighs every last hour of sleep. Batman shares his mission, gives orders, imparts knowledge, and Robin keeps Batman sharp, keeps him smart, saves Batman from Batman, one painful quip at a time. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world. Greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Happy 2022, everyone. Our special guest fanfiction author today is the amazing Elise 51. She has been a member of AO3 since 2016 and currently has eight fanfiction stories posted. Most of her fics do fall under the DC Comic Universe category, but she also has one fic posted for Emergency, the TV show, and also a fic posted for Cobra Kai. Elise 51 is the twin sister of Sarah from the Fan Fig podcast, aka Story Shark 2005 on AO3. She is EMT certified and has a master's degree from Rice University, hell yeah. She's a romantic baseball fan and says that she does try to work baseball in to most of the fics that she writes. Elise 51 currently works in the healthcare industry and loves reading, writing, and imagining fictional people struggling with what William Faulkner describes as the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself. Which is a sentiment that I would agree with and absolutely I can get behind. So Elise 51, a thousand welcomes to the Fanfic Maverick podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much, Kaspel. It's good to be here. I like didn't realize that that might sound pretentious with me dropping William Faulkner into my own introduction. But-
0: oh no, no, no! <laughs> like let's name drop as many as we can here Absolutely. because I Absolutely. love William Faulkner. Like "As I Lay Dying" lives rent free in my head. Oh yeah, always. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm so excited
1: that you're here today. Absolutely, I- I'm excited to be here. You're very easy to talk to. So,
0: ah, perfect, perfect, perfect. We're really going to have a good one today. I want to talk first about your fan fiction origin story. Like, how and when did you first discover fan fiction? And do you remember what it actually felt like, discovering your first piece?
1: You know, like, my memory isn't as good as Sarah's, I think, because, like, I think she started reading before I did, because she talks about, like, going on the early, like, the, I think the Star Wars forums. I can't remember which one she started in. But I kind of followed her into it, I think. I remember fanfiction.net, and that's about the earliest that I remember I read, like, she mentioned Star Wars Apprentice. I was reading, that was kind of my series first as far as the books go. I remember reading Star Wars Apprentice and then at some point looking up fan fiction about them. I don't have, like, a wonderfully clear memory of, like, my first encounter on fanfiction.net. But I really didn't get serious until later. I mean, I remember, like, I do have an old fan fiction account with, uh, like, a work in progress, a WIP, excuse me, that is unfinished and will always be unfinished because it's terrible. <laughs> but, but uh it was for like third watch was this cop show like in the uh, late 90s early 2000s oh yeah 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 Yeah, i was really big into that show for a while and then like i remember i do actually remember reading batman begins fan fiction because when that nolan film first came out i was <gasps> it was funny yes. stories to me apparently like i remember being obsessed with it and i would have been i think in middle school or early high school I can't remember, but I had a portable DVD player and like I would carry that around in the portable DVD player and, and like watch it in the car and stuff.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Over and over yeah. and over, right? <laughs> over and over. Like I loved
1: and I still like I still love the Nolan films, but they don't necessarily any more represent how I think about Batman. But anyway, I, I still ha- have an appreciation for them, some problems with them, but they were enjoyable films and they were the f- first time I felt like Batman was really taken seriously. But I remember reading some, like, Bat-Cat, Batman with Selena, And then I remember also becoming kind of obsessed with Casino Royale, the Bond movie. Like, my common theme is I think I've, like, I saw male leads that I was attracted to. And then I would, like, <laughs> go and read fan fiction about them. Although, I think there was some Lord of the Rings. I was just kind of all over the place. But as far as my origin story, so I was doing that. I didn't get heavily into it like Sarah did, though. At least not until later. She, at some point, it's really not until, like, she got into Cobra Kai. and She started writing No Mercy. And then by that point, skipping over many years of my life, I was working in the ER already at that point, And I was working overnights. And I would, like, in downtime, because it's either feast or famine in the ER. So there was a lot of downtime sometimes. And I would, like, go onto her Google Drive and edit or comment. And then slowly it came to, like, me, like, writing small portions of it. I mean, to this day, really my name, I personally feel like my name, I wish it wasn't on that like as a credit, because that really is her story. I did write small portions of it, but that that kind of like got me into writing again after I hadn't written really fiction hardly at all. And then, uh, yeah, later I started collecting comics again. We can talk about that later if you want. But if, yeah, for some reason I got hooked into um, Bat Family and Jason and Dick Grayson pairing and... That's where I've been. Now, hold on,
0: hold on, hold on. I got to unpack this. This I know there's a lot there. (laughs) Hold on. Oh, my God. Wait a second. Are you saying that you had never written fan fiction before until Cobra Kai?
1: Well, there is that. So you mentioned that emergency story. Well, there was the emergency story and I had written that. Like I'm trying to figure out how to say this without giving you a 20 minute exposition of my journey to where I am now. But like, basically, I was in graduate school. And really, the only writing I had done was like academic writing. And I kind of got to grad school because I didn't know what else to do with my life. And I accidentally got into, I say accidentally, but I stumbled my way into a really nice program. It was actually PhD track. But after a year, I knew I wasn't necessarily well-suited for it. Or else I decided that it just, I didn't picture myself in the future doing that, even though there was wonderful people there. But anyway, I was already knowing that I should look for something else. It ended up being a perfect series of decisions for me because I ended up walking away with a master's because I had completed enough classroom requirements. So I, w- I walked away without with that and, and left in good standing without having to like complete the PhD or walk away in disgrace in that way. So it was great, but I took a leave of absence to do it. And during that time, I was like searching for something new. <laughs> and at the time I was watching a lot of, this 1970s emergency responder show called emergency exclamation point. It's actually a weirdly fabulous show in that it directly affected the public's perception of first responders. It came out like 1972. And at that time, paramedics were experimental in like a couple cities, but otherwise you didn't have the nine one one response system that you have now. But there's also just a couple uh, characters in there that are very charismatic. And I really, and, and the, like the rescue scenes and the medical stuff actually is pretty damn good and still holds up in some ways. It's really fun show. It's a Jack Webb show. All the cases that they showed in the show had to be from real life responses that had happened. So it was very concerned with realism in a way. Like it's, it is not a soap opera that you see now. And all these like, to me, like hospital and um, cop shows, it's hard for me to watch because they're so, they feel like romance dramas. It's not always a bad thing. But Emergency was not like that. Feel free to go check it out. This actor named Randolph Mantooth was in it. He was like a lot of fun to watch. And then the rest of his life, he was just spoke like to promote firefighters and first responders, which is really cool. Oh, that's nice. Anyway, I know this is a long tangent, but um, I really got into the show. And then I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to go ride on an ambulance. So I signed up for a civilian ride along in Houston. I had a 24-hour shift with some paramedics and had a blast. And I thought, you know what, this is better than nothing. I'm <laughs> so I went home, got my EMT and I just spent a summer in like an ambulance internship, basically. Yeah. EMT internship. But what I ended up doing is working in hospital as an ER tech. So that like that's all over from I don't know, a four year period from college to to grad school and then back home. And that whole time, yeah, the only writing really I'd done was academic writing, but particularly like leaving academia. I exercised a whole separate skill set between academia and like EMT ER. To this day I kinda of proud of myself because it really like it emphasized a, a skill set in me that I didn't know I had. But I did leave behind like my days in graduate school were like reading and writing and I did miss that and I didn't realize how much I missed it. And I, I never thought of myself as a a fiction writer, but Sarah was doing it and I was so proud of her and like just slowly over the years she got she improved so much and then like people always thought of me as the lit person in the family but then I would go read her fan fiction and I was like damn that's really good she's better writer than me because <laughs> she had sat in the chair and she had done the work this whole time while I was having my little life crises. and anyway so I sat down and I wrote that little emergency piece and I think it's 2016 and that was just to get me writing but I had just been busy the last few years and yeah didn't really until you're right until Sarah had no mercy I really hadn't written fan
0: fiction
1: oh wow
0: that's incredible to me yeah it's kind of a
1: weird journey for sure
0: no that's awesome though that's so awesome because i remember in my 30s and this is so silly now that i think back on it but like i remember in my early 30s sometimes having that feeling of well i'm in my 30s now like i'm too old to discover new things (laughs) and it is what it is you know and it took a little bit of time for me to kind of get over myself a little bit and to remind myself like just because you're getting older out of your 20s doesn't mean that you can't still discover wildly interesting new things at any age and give them a try. So I love that for you. Maybe it came a little later in life than a lot of fan fiction writers, but you just kind of threw yourself into it and thought, "Ah, right?" because you missed the whole writing thing and honestly like I would have never guessed that <laughs> that you hadn't been doing it like since you were, you know, a little kid because It's just so good, you know, so good. Thank you so much. And of course, obviously, you're like, you know, hella invested now and super involved in, Mm -hmm. you know, different fandoms and you write consistently and all that, which I think is super rad. So
1: trying to. Yeah. It's been a little journey. Like I have a couple of those earlier stories, like the one called Dear Dickhead and then that (laughs) sort of turned into a little series. But those just started as writing exercises and like they've gotten some good attention and I'm like, I'm not totally happy with them. But it was something that got me writing and, yes, and got me thinking about those characters.
0: <laughs> well, no, and I can see how. I can see how because I, I read Dear Dick. It was really, really good. It was after I had watched, um, oh, what is that? Uh, Ooh, like Under the Red Hood or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so that's the perfect time to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that and I was like, oh, my gosh, wow, cool. And then I went and, re- and read Dear Dick and was like, oh, yeah yeah this like you know because it is kind of an emotional experience watching the movie but then I feel like I got a much better emotional sense of the implication after reading fan fiction about it especially your story so it's just cool. so great
1: that's like the whole point right and it yeah is. that movie really is like it is really good and it's good because like so Judd Winnick wrote Under the Red Hood the original story arc was called Under the Hood I know I talked about this with Sarah before but and then he adapted the screenplay for the movie version. So to me, that's why it it's so good. And it wasn't ruined because the same oh. writer was able to, they changed like little things. So I recommend like for folks, if you haven't seen it, go see it. You know, it's got Jensen Ackles, which doesn't hurt. He plays an excellent Jason Todd. Uh, it surprises me every time. I kind of don't like that. Now he's been, I actually have not watched the long Halloween yet, but he voices Bruce Wayne in it. And part of me is like, no, you're Jason
2: Todd. <laughs>
1: you're not his dad
2: yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) for sure yeah
1: but uh but if folks have seen that haven't read the graphic novel you should still read the graphic novel because it's got it's like if i had to recommend one graphic novel for anyone to read especially dc comics it would be under the red hood the sad thing is it's the best jason writing probably that you're gonna find like it's sort of downhill after that (laughs) although he also wrote a companion it's like five or six issue art called there was a series called Redhead Lost Days, and that one's great too. So both of those would be high on my recommendation list. But Jason Todd's like, he's kind of my heart. I, he's the one I've drawn to the most.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw in your profile, uh, Jason Todd apologist, which I just love that. I was like, oh, yes. that's awesome. I <laughs> love one it. of my
1: my good good friends, Space Capes, is her handle on uh, Ao3, but she sent me a card that said that on there, and
0: I was like, yeah, it's <laughs> true. It that. is true. <laughs> Well, and I can see I can see how that's kind of a thing, too, because, you know, I'll be completely honest, you know, here at the beginning of this whole thing Mm -hmm. is I am a Marvel girl, right? Like that's just where my area (laughs) is. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't had as much exposure with DC. And so Under the Red Hood was my first ever exposure to Jason Todd. I did not know who Jason Todd was until I watched that. And then, you know, like reading fan fictions about Jason Todd after that, like I have a little bit better understanding now of who this is. But yeah, yeah, I can absolutely see how you know he's such a fascinating character because there's so much complicated stratification there internally with him emotionally. You know, I can absolutely see why there's so many layers.
1: I think so too. He's such a great foil for. I, I think even more than like I'm obviously interested in the romantic pairing between De Grace and Jason Todd, but even more so, I think by most like for me the richest relationship in the whole family for me is between Bruce Wayne and Jason Todd. For reasons like yes the paternalism, but like he offers such an amazing foil for Batman and a challenge to his morality and his you know his mission. I mean there are Jason Todd fans that hate Bruce and that will cast him as a bad dad with rigid philosophy, which is it's doable to do that and and there's plenty to back it up. You know it's like so many people have written the character Bruce Wayne, that you can't get too caught up in canon because it's been written by 80 billion people. But Bruce, in general, the comment is that, you know, he is Batman and he's got, he naturally operates in, like, such a gray area morally, legally, all kinds of gray areas, but he's got two rules that he won't break and that's using guns and killing. Jason does both of those things <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. with, with gusto. But under the Red Hood, like, Judd Winnick didn't invent Jason Todd Technically speaking, but he invented Red Hood and he brought Jason back and he gave us, I think, what we think of as Jason Tide now. That last confrontation scene between him and Bruce is so good because he writes Jason's like you, you come into it thinking it's just a uh, kind of a madman on a revenge story. But you come away from it realizing like he straight up says, you know, I forgive you for my death. He's not there to put Bruce on trial exactly for Jason's death. My Jason Todd, the way I understand it, is that he internalizes actually a lot of guilt and shame about letting himself get killed because he made some decisions that probably Bruce feels like Bruce is responsible for, and Jason feels like Jason's responsible for. But in any case, this is more about letting Joker live, and that's what that last confrontation's about. But I think, like to me, that it is Jason's way of trying to like understanding why he was brought back, which in DC Universe is like this. Stupidly complicated thing that no one cares about. But he was brought back, and in his own mind, it's to set things right. And that involves killing the Joker, but it involves him. Like he recasts the play of his own death, and he brings Bruce in a room, and he brings the Joker in a room. And to me, in my mind, Jason is fully convinced that Bruce will do the right thing in his mind, which is to kill the Joker. And Bruce doesn't do it. And it's devastating if you think about it from Jason's perspective, because he's like, for Bruce, he won't do it because Batman can't do that. And, like, Batman stands for more than just a, being a father. And this is And A sacrifice of being a hero is that you have more obligations beyond yourself and beyond the people you love, which is tragic in a way because it's like he can't be a good father and be Batman. To Bruce, he's got to pick one or the other. And in this case, he won't break his own rule for Jason. And what I think why I'm so hooked into Jason is because what Jason hears is that He doesn't mean enough to Bruce to kill for. And like, that's so human. And so like, it it gives me chest pain.
0: (laughs) It is because it's so much like, it's like, I'm like, I'm not enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm not enough. And how many sons over the whole span of human history have felt that way about their father, you know, because you want that acceptance and you want that love and you want to be enough, you know? And so he takes that and internalizes it and tells himself, I wasn't enough. Yeah. You know? And like, that's just oh. so tragic
1: and horrible. <laughs> I know. And I think Judd Winnick, like, he writes Batman's perspective well. Like, to do a good scene like that, I think you have you have to be, you have to play one side of the debate. It's like playing chess with yourself. You have to play one side and then you got to go to the other side of the board and then you play that. But you have to play both sides sincerely. And that's when you get, like, truly complicated character interactions where it's not so obviously... You can't tell what the, I mean, with me, you might, I'm probably not good enough and you can tell which side I'm on, but I try not to be, and I, try to write in that way where you could go wide. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're trying. To yeah,
0: play. yeah, yeah. Well, it just brings that whole gray matter back. Gray yes, matter is probably yes. not the way I'm trying to explain that either, but it's like this gray area. Yes, yes. Especially because we are talking about family relationships here and family mm-hmm. dynamics, which I do want to get more into later as we talk specifically about even the losers. But yeah, because it's family relationships, there is going to be gray area. All over the fucking place. Like, it is not going to be a black and white thing. And that's yes. that's normal. That's human. That's most of our experiences. So I can see how this fandom, especially with those specific relationships, are just rich, fertile ground for really interesting storytelling. I love it. And I can't wait to talk about it more as we get into the story Now, I was told, and I think that you said this a couple minutes ago, that literature was what you were studying with your master's degree and all that, So, which I thought it was so cool when I heard that. I was (laughs) like, oh my gosh, I love Elise even more than I did before because that's just so sink and cool. I love that. And I had wanted to know if writing had always been part of your ethos, for lack of a better word. And you Mm -hmm. kind of answered that already, I think, is that writing wasn't necessarily something you had always grown up with saying. I want to be a writer. But it's something that kind of developed for you later on in life, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, I I would say I've always been bookish and always loved, knew I loved the arts, but I never thought I had, I don't know, I, I guess I never thought I had what it took to write fiction. It never came quite as naturally as I found myself to be a little more suited to, like, essay writing. And, I mean, I remember writing, like, little things, like, in middle school. I do remember... There was an exercise where we read the Telltale Heart and we had to, I don't know, do some project. I don't know if it was an option, but if it was an option, then what I chose to do was you pick a different character in the Telltale Heart. And there's not a lot of other characters and you write the story from their perspective. So there's like one, I don't know, like a police detective or something in there that ends up investigating the murder. And so I wrote the story from that perspective. And my middle school English teacher, who was very good, he really liked it. And he said that this was exactly what he was hoping that, you know, we would do. And that kind of always stuck with me. But in general, at least compared to Sarah, I've always been like a little more analytical. And she was more of like the creative, a little more daydreamy. I don't know. When I went to college, I did like, it didn't take too long for me to get into the English major track. And I think that's just because I realized I did so well in the English classes. I really enjoyed them. The exposure to all the classics particularly like Shakespeare, but I really got into like the big 19th century British novel. And I fell in love with like George Eliot in particular. Yeah, big, like big character novels. But I could have done creative writing as a major, but I just, I didn't, I don't think I thought I could do it. The nonfiction stuff just tended to come more naturally. I remember I took a class in nonfiction writing. It was just a little less popular. I think I liked that it was less popular. There's like <laughs> less competition. I, yeah. I I joined a lit journal. Like I was on the staff of a lit journal. And they were excited that I was interested in nonfiction because everyone else wanted to do fiction. So I think part of me enjoyed that as it was like a way to be more of an individual. And I just kind of assumed I couldn't do fiction because I just didn't have a pull to it. Especially now that I'm looking back on it, like original character fiction, I didn't have a pull to it. But yeah, then it was like... It's just this funny little thing because like our whole lives, even though we're twins, like Sarah's, we have a little bit of a big sister, little sister dynamic. It's not like major, but a little bit there. And I sort of led a little bit in certain things in our lives. But with this fan fiction, I totally admit I've been playing follow the leader the whole time because I still remember when she, I found out she read. It pains me to say this, but keep in mind like how and I know you know this like how much our culture has changed in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. But I remember thinking it was so weird that she read gay fan fiction and she was reading Kirk Spock. And then she admitted to me, she was reading like Wincest. And I was like, Sarah, like that's fucked up. Those are brothers. (laughs) you know it's like and now like all i read is gay fan fiction like my favorite supernatural pairing is incest
0: you have been converted i
1: have been completely converted now it's like she'll show me a show and i may or may not be interested in and then i found like a month later i'm like all in for it so now i just admit you know it stares into something now just wait a few months and i'll be into it too so she's really been inspiring to me and i you know very proud of her for the kind of writing she puts out and and the podcast as well. She has a lot of fun with both of your podcasts. I listen to
0: both of them. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) No, I have a a follow-up question for you on all of that because I am so endeared to you for saying that you consider yourself more of an analytical thinker, right? Just naturally, Mm -hmm. because I am the same way, just more analytical. I can pop off writing something technical I can pop off, yeah. you know, that, like, no problem. So great, you know, yes. so articulate. But when it comes to creative writing, I struggle so bad. And so for a long time, I just thought, I'm not creative. I'm too left hemisphered and analytical for that. Like, too bad. No, there's hope for you. <laughs> well, well, th- th- that's kind of what my question is for you, because then I started doing this podcast. And I... It's not the same as writing fan fiction or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but there is something creative in it, even though it is a little bit more analytical with, you know, the technical stuff, but there is still something creative in it. And that act of doing something creative consistently for the first Mm -hmm. time in my whole life has absolutely changed me. And so my question to you is coming also from the analytical side. How do you feel that being creative and writing fanfiction has changed you? Has oh, it?
1: Yeah. I think so. Um, even just reading it, like I've told people before, I actually think reading fanfiction has made me a better person. And I mean, like, at the end of the day, you can't beat real person interaction as far as becoming more open minded, becoming more empathetic. In high school, we didn't know any gay people. And I had never heard of anything beyond being gay or being straight transgenderism was not a thing when I was in high school or really, I mean, it was almost after college. So I did meet more friends in college and that helped a lot, but there's something about fan fiction, you know, it'll hook you in however it needs to with whatever fandom or character. But if you start just reading, you know, you read about characters and in, in relationships that are totally different from you. And if, especially if it's written well, I mean, it can, it can blow the top of your head off. I think reading more about homosexual relationships or polyamory or, or um, bisexuality, whatever term, non-normative term you want to use. I think my exposure to fan fiction has made me a more empathetic person. I mean, it's these stories have like, moved me to tears. The difference maybe with writing is just that you... Like for me, I have to sit with characters in my mind and have them kind of marinate and walk around in my mind for quite a long time before I feel like much can come out on the page. And it's also fun too, but like they switch from becoming like somewhat two dimensional, whether it's a comic book or a movie or in in some books, but there's just something about if you give them time and you think about them and you give them the benefit of this person could be human. That's when all the neat little things start coming out and you might pull it from Fanon as in, you know, a different story you read, as Dick Grayson having this one trait, you never thought about it. And you think like, oh, that makes sense. And it makes him a little more human. And then you might incorporate that into how you think about that character. And then that continues to marinate. And then soon you have like something like a three dimensional character that if, if there was magic and you could pluck him out of your head, he would walk around and interact with you in a way that you had very little to do with because they almost, this character almost has its own agency. That's, like, the ideal if you can get there. But for me, it does take a long time thinking about it, but also, like, I never expected the Dear Dickhead. I, I didn't initially plan on releasing that. It was just a writing exercise for me. I thought, you know what, if I'm, if I'm going to write about these characters, I want to practice with them. So somehow, like, I just started writing in first person, which is not my favorite way to write, but it's what came out. And then it started sort of sounding like a letter. So I thought, well, maybe this can be a letter and then more came out. But then I thought, well, he would never send this letter. And then I thought, well, why does he need to like, maybe he can write this letter. He has no intention of sending. And then that was a way to have all these interesting things come out that like his internal thoughts that he would never, that Jason would never um, allow to come out. And because I allowed my mind to think this is something that Jason might just, he was frustrated. Maybe he's just writing this because I don't know, But a lot more to come out. And so it has a lot to do with just sitting in the chair and kind of forcing things to come out and being okay that they're not going to be that good. And then, you know, if you keep at it, especially if you have someone to bounce ideas off of, if you ever need someone, you just go ahead and email
0: me. Um, I I uh, don't want to scar you with the... uh...
1: No, 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 no. Seriously, though. I mean, and like Sarah will point to stuff that she used to write and it's not that good compared to her current stuff. And I look at Dear head and I'm I'm not that impressed with it compared to like even the losers. And the thing to keep in mind is that you you actually can't get worse unless you're in some kind of traumatic accident and you have brain damage or something. But you, you actually can't get worse and you can only get better by just allow yourself to be like imperfect. Tell yourself, this is not going to be good, but try your best, like set aside time to put words on a page if you need a writing prompt, you know, like look up writing prompts or something, or just like you have to pick uh, a character or something that you're interested, in. you have to be interested in it and then know that it won't be that good, but be okay with that. And then just keep doing it and you actually won't get worse. And that's kind of the magic of it, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. The first time I heard that, I think Sarah said that when she came on the show Probably last so. year. She, I, she talks to me. just Yeah. And <laughs> I just was like, oh, that's so beautiful because it's so true. Like, Practice really does make perfect. And it's impossible to get worse if you put in the time, put in the hours, you know, I think that that's always a beautiful thing to hear.
1: And try not to compare yourself with other people, because that's just yeah. like,
0: I could, I can name all these other people. There's much better writers than me, but
1: you, you can't, you just have to yeah. think like, you know what, I am on my own little journey here. And that's okay. And that you know what, there's always someone better than you, but there's actually always someone worse than you.
0: Um, so think of <laughs> yes. it that way. You know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And honestly, like, I think it may have been perverse Idol recently who said on the show, like, it's so important for everybody who wants to write to just go for it, even if you think you're the worst writer on the planet. Yeah. Because you have something that you're going to add to the yes. universe that nobody else is going to be able to add just because it's in your brain, it's in your heart, it's mm-hmm. your interpretation. And nobody else is going to sing that song like you do.
1: I had very good, similar advice from my professor that, you know, I had to write a paper on Moby Dick and I was like, well, what the fuck hasn't been written about Moby Dick? (laughs) And he's like, and I had a thing, he's like, well, it's probably been written about before, but you know what? It hasn't been written by you. So go ahead and go for it and see what happens. And you're
0: right. It's the same thing. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I also love that you shared how just reading fan fiction has changed your life in certain ways. I love that. I feel like that's so honest and open. So thank you so much for that. And that kind of does transition a little bit into thoughts on the concept of fan fiction. Why is it so important? Why should we be giving our time to reading and writing it? So I kind of wanted to know what your personal manifesto is on fan fiction, essentially, aside from what you've already shared, which it was very beautiful. I loved that.
1: Well, thank you. You know, like essentially, and and I know you've asked this of other people before because I always like the answers but I'm not going to be real original about it. Cause I think it's similar in that. The number one reason is that it's fun and it allows me to be creative, you know, in a way that no other aspect of my life, you know, kind of lets me be it is a place to create art where other people will actually see it and maybe talk about it with you instead of just, you know, I don't know, like writing the novel of the century in a basement when no one gives a shit about your characters, or, you know? <laughs> right, it is, yeah, well, languishing like away. Place is, it allows a, a forum of uh, many voices, uh, for good or ill, to, to talk about your stuff. Yeah, and then, you know, you will have the full spectrum that you can find on AO3 of like, really kind of, I don't mean to be like crude about it, but really bad writing, people's beginning writing, or or just people that don't really put much thought into it, which is fine. Totally fine. You have like a dirty, dirty porn, which is also totally fine. And I'm glad it's there. You have the full spectrum of that all the way up to like these character storytelling pieces that took, you know, three years to write. And this person's obviously poured their heart into it. And it's just as good as anything, if not better than anything you'll find published on the shelf. You get this full spectrum and it's just people creating stuff that they want to create. It's a bonus if people comment or kudos. It gives you a little bit of more oomph to keep going. But I love. It's very democratic in that way that you do not have to go through some kind of publication chain to create something and put it out there that you care about. And it's a place where you will grow as a writer. And if people are paying attention, they'll they'll even notice. You know, there are writers like I always think of Fabula Rossa, who's been on, who's a big writer on Ao3, particularly in DC Comics. She writes a lot of or actually don't know the pronouns, so maybe they written a lot of Bat Lantern, Bruce and Hal Jordan. An incredible writer, so good, has been doing it for, I think, over two decades. I can't remember, somewhere in that range. So folks have been here doing this a long time, and they have gotten really, really good. And some of the best character writing that I've ever read. Also Fabula, they are Fabula um, Unica on Tumblr. And if you look at some of the posts that they have about just the philosophy of writing. is just really, really great, in depth thought about what goes into characterization and has really affected me. And how, like, when I was talking about making sure they're three dimensional, they can walk around and they can surprise you, and that writing is essentially exploratory, like, Fabio talks about that a lot. So, all those things, I think, go to why fan fiction is important to me. Then I also will say that I've met a lot of friends online and I am part of a Discord in the Jason and Dick pairing and I've met a lot of uh, wonderful people that way. So it's it's just like this whole other sector of my life that is somewhat cut off a little bit from the rest of my life. Although Sarah's a point of connection and I've just been more open about, like I tell people now, like, oh yeah, I write fan fiction. I write gay superhero fan fiction is just be blunt about it
2: and they're <laughs> I, like I oh that.
1: yeah and you know sometimes the reaction is i think that you know oh fan fiction there's a lot of like self insert stuff be like well yes there is some of that but you know what actually you just have to know how to use ao3 and you can come across some really really fabulous stuff not to like take a shit on anyone that does self insert but um you know it's just not maybe my cup of tea
0: the whole spectrum's on there and it's creative and it's fun. And yeah. Oh, I love that. Because, like, uh, yeah, the connection. It's so interesting to me how the one act of writing fan fiction equals all of these other things in our lives, right? Because yeah. we have the interaction from it. I don't know. It's like a way of responding to what's given to us by others. And then we can yeah. transform it and create something else that somebody else gets to respond to. It's almost like I picture cells regenerating or reproducing, right. you know, under a microscope and just on and on and on and on. And it's this beautiful, like, you know, active creation. And then on top of that, we get to meet other families, people in the community yes. that <laughs> love the same stuff but that we do. And yeah. I mean, it is so cool. I will say that the most beautiful people I've ever met in the entire world have all come from the fandom fan fiction communities. You guys are just so great. <laughs> I love you guys. So yeah, that's always been a draw. So I love that. I love that those are your thoughts on fan fiction. And that's absolutely beautiful. I also love that you're a comic book collector. I don't know very many of those. I think that's so rad. When did you start doing that? (laughs)
1: Like the very beginning would be when I was a kid because uh, I didn't do it a lot. But there was this store in my hometown that is no longer there. It was called Quali Comics, I think, uh, with a K or something. Um, and I just, I do remember going in there every once in a while. And my first big series was actually Peter David's Supergirl. It was like from like 1996. So I'm thinking I was like around nine, 10 years old, maybe
0: when oh I first started
1: picking up something like that, like fairly young.
0: Do you remember what sparked that desire to go into oh, that shop in the first place to go get that? Like not really. I, I suspect it might have to do with my brother because my brother's two years older
1: And he really was into Green Arrow and Green Lantern. So he was, he was into DC at the time. And, you know, I, we grew up watching like Superman, Batman cartoons. So those characters were familiar to me. I don't remember the exact like hook in, but I I suspect my mom just took us there and encouraged us. She loved anything we would read. She let us, as long as it had to do with reading, she was okay with it. And I do remember specifically looking for a female hero. And admittedly at the time, I I was kind of a, maybe a weird little kid but i wanted something like sort of wholesome to me and I, I, my opinion's totally changed but i thought at the time that wonder woman just seemed to be some chick that fought superheroes in a bathing suit and i th- <laughs> i thought that was just not very good catwoman scandalous, right? <laughs> scandalous. Uh, i was like oh um you know i don't know um but but uh, like weird little conservative child cat i remember seeing catwoman at i had like picked up a couple of catwoman which at the time, probably would have been Chuck Dixon had a Catwoman yeah. series, and she was just in this like tight purple leotard with huge tits. um To be crude about it, um, <laughs> of course, and of I course, even yeah. remember thinking, I just don't like like the illustration is so sexual. Like for a ten year old girl, it, at least for me, <laughs> I wasn't really looking for that. But I found Peter David Supergirl, and it's like she's beautifully drawn in it, but it's a little more. I mean, you can't get more wholesome than the Super Family. This is. Clark's cousin right but it was colorful beautifully drawn Peter David um David Kirk and Riggs was the kind of the core team of that but I kept collecting it for quite a while I don't have all of them but I have a good number of them and it lasted up through like 96 to 2000 and I don't know was it 2002 I can't exactly remember but it was a good run probably about 100 issues and it wasn't Kara zor I don't have to go into the whole thing but it involved basically a human woman who through a series of comic book events gets her soul kind of gets combined with Kara Zor-El oh okay she transforms between Linda Danvers and Supergirl and so you've got the superhero story but it's blended with this very fallible young woman who was actually into some like really she was kind of like got involved in a satanic cult or something ran into some bad people got taken advantage of and then Supergirl Kara Zor-El, who is not human, now I'm thinking there was like more to it, something called Matrix that I don't really understand. It's like comics canon is so fucking wonky and crazy, but it involved the sacrifice of a super person and and bestowing this gift kind of upon a regular human woman. And it eventually got into a lot of like angel and demon mythology and a character named Buzz that was had to do a lot with like sin and redemption and like... Kind of quasi-religious themes, and I'm not a religious person, but it was kind of, I don't know, I found it really compelling at the time, but that was like my series. I do remember picking up some issues of Nightwing, Chuck Dixon's run, also I think from around 96, and I, I, 100% I know it's because he looked so pretty on the cover, and that's why I picked it up. Because Nightwing is just an objectively pretty person. Oh, right, right, so right. I, I can totally
0: I did, understand that. <laughs> right. So
1: I, th- those are my like early, like, I knew Nightwing before I knew Jason Todd. And at some point, I think I saw Under the Red Hood first, maybe close to when it came out. And then I picked up A Death in the Family, which was the original Batman arc of the death of Jason Todd. And it's kind of old and wonky, but there's still parts of it that can give me goosebumps. And yeah, I think I picked up Lost Days. And this would have all been like, maybe early college, but I really totally got out of it. And then it's only till like a year ago or so that I really started to like pick up on the comics. And man, I've got a nice little collection now. It's kind of I don't like to think about how much money I've spent on comic books.
0: Have you had to, like, clear out a special spot in your house just for the Yeah, I don't have a
1: great place, but I have this little, like, I'm actually sitting in, I do not have a proper office, but I have sat, like, a table in front of a window with some of my school stuff on a little bookshelf, and then I have two short boxes of comics and I've got two more at my parents' house. Don't tell them. Um, <laughs> and, and then oh, no. I've got uh, a pretty decent stack of graphic novels near me, too, all within reaching distance. So, like, the way I write, I write over here in my little corner, and then I will pull out issues. To, like, my favorite thing in the world is to write picking things out of canon, little moments or little piece of dialogue, and kind of making them ring a little more meaningful. Like, there, there's quite a bit of canon references in Even the Losers. And I do use comics for inspiration, but they're not, it's not like a, canon's not my Bible because I don't think that there is a coherent Bible, so-called of canon, that exists anyway. Because like I say, like, you know, how many thousand people have written Bruce Wayne? So I don't worry about like being totally in canon, but I do enjoy using comic books as a kind of a backbone or at least a starting point, an entryway into a story.
0: Oh, and I love that. I love that. Like the entryway description is perfect. Besides being entryway to other things for you, is there something else that really kind of draws you to the genre of comic books or, like, compels you to keep collecting them?
1: I think it's probably a few things. Like, art. Like I love artwork. I love the colorful art of comics. And there's a few artists that I'll just, if it's got Dustin Wynn's name on it, he's one that I'll just buy it. He's got a beautiful style. And I mean, it can really make or break a story. The artwork, I think most people would admit when they're looking at a comic, like in the Red Hood run, we had this fabulous artist named Dexter Soy, who really drew Jason with like a real distinct look and uh, he could draw the, the expressions and uh, he just had a really nice look to him. And then when other folks took over, I just found myself like less interested in it. So the artwork's one reason, I think particularly with the Bat family, I like that they're not so-called superhero or they're not metahumans. There are humans that have this really interesting psychology behind them, and then this kind of crazy training and it you know' it would be a bizarre family if you ever encountered them in real life. But I think that idea of you know someone who's you know money doesn't hurt with Bruce Wayne, I'll admit that, and if people don't like Batman, it's always because they think he's a rich white guy with gadgets, and there's there's nothing special about him and I get that, but I think it it cheapens the to me it is a very superficial reading of of Bruce Wayne. It's defensible to a certain extent, but I think that I can only read. Like, I'm interested in Bruce Wayne because I think he's a very complex character. And the whole Bat family is like this whole I can't think of a word, I think, Panoply. I, I, that doesn't quite sound right, but a whole cast of characters who are each very unique and different, and their interactions with each other is like a whole lot of fun, which I think was why Even the Losers was so fun to write, because essentially the main character is the family, and I have many interactions between each of the characters and that's like the fun part rather than picking like one character that you write about. I had the whole family at my disposal. The other thing I'd say about Batman too, is that this was articulated really well by Fabula in a, some Tumblr post somewhere where they say that, you know, why is Bruce Wayne so fascinating? Because he's like arguably the darkest, loneliest character in the DC universe. And yet like it's this guy, not Clark Kent, you know, Mr. Ray of sunshine. Not, you know, Barry Allen or someone who's, like, open and charismatic. It's Bruce Wayne who has the largest family in the DC universe. He's got, like, this whole little parade of orphans behind him. Like, how did this happen? And you can't be, like, you can be super cynical and say they're just his little soldiers. But to me, that's, that's not an interesting path to go down. And you just find this guy that is a very lonely person, and yet he has this selflessness in him, and he has a need to have family. It's that f- theme of family that really draws me in, I think, to reading about the Bat family.
0: Uh, that's so cool. And that sounds like it is something that's pretty prevalent in the comic book series, is right? So when you're, when you're getting these and you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, it just sounds like a found family on steroids almost. Because, yeah, yeah. I did not realize how many, what am I trying to say here? Well, how many <laughs> children he brought into yeah. the family. Like, I knew yeah. about Dick. I knew about Jason. I didn't know about any of the others. And I was like, who right. are these people? And it was just so fascinating to realize, like, <gasps> there's so many. Some of the
1: funniest, like, crack fic is, like, when the JLA finds out how many children Bruce has. And they're like, hey. <laughs> That's some of the funnest ones. And, like, it, it, like in canon, it depends who's writing them. Because sometimes they still write him as such a, like, a lone wolf, kind of a psychopath. Or they'll write the whole family, but Jason's not there, you know, because he's supposed to be the angry one. Right, right, Which right. I get. It depends what part of the timeline they're in. But there are a few authors that will um, include most of them. And it depends what definition you're using. I mean, besides like, so you've got like Alfred and Bruce, Dick, Jason, Tim, Damien. Cassandra Cain was adopted, so she's considered part of the Bat family. Step Brown was a Robin. She's not officially a member of Bruce Wayne's family, but she's... She dated Tim and then she's just, she's Batgirl or spoiler, depending on. So she's kind of like an inducted member of the Bat family. He's got a cousin named Kate Kane. Oh, Duke is a newer member of sort of Batman's circle of, I don't know, orphans. I don't think, I don't think he like officially adopts him. But he is uh, like he's another member of the Bat Family, kind of, and he'll be included sometimes too. But there's there's quite a number of them.
0: <laughs> oh no, I just think that that's so cool because yeah, all of that family dynamic. You know, I think I said it before that it just it's so right. Yeah,
1: and it's it's definitely found family in the in the yeah. Bat Family
0: for sure. It totally is. It <laughs> totally is, and people are just so drawn to that trope that it's just yes. like ah. So yeah. I think that's really, really cool. And I can absolutely see why that would be such a huge draw for you with Batman. I did kind of want to ask about your early exposure to the Batman franchise, because it's been around oh, yeah. for a really long time. And I'll tell you my exposure because oh, please, please, it's actually really, well, I think it's hilarious. People will probably be like, oh, my God. But um, when I was like six and seven, you know, in my family, because uh, my family was, like, super hyper-religious, right? So my mm-hmm. mom was really careful about the stuff we were allowed to watch. Oh boy. Yeah. And we were not the people that were allowed to watch, like, afternoon cartoons, you know, oh, after man. school and stuff. That was not a thing we were allowed to do. <laughs> However, I found out one day when I was, like, I don't know, six or seven, that old-school original Batman TV show, Hell, right? Yeah. From, like, Adam what, West. the 60s, I think? 60s, yes, yeah, Adam yeah, like West. 66. Yes.
1: Burt Ward, the Burt Ward.
0: Uh-huh. I love yep. that show. three ones came on in the afternoons. And I remember being like, Hey mom, like could we watch this? <laughs> and she sat down one day and she watched a few episodes with us and she was like, Oh, this isn't bad. And I think she thought that it wasn't bad because like the violence, quote unquote, is really campy yeah. type violence with the pain. They knew, pow, they knew you know? exactly
1: what they were doing too. Go ahead, but <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was really stylized and nobody really got hurt or whatever. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so like she let us watch it, right? Amazing. Yes. I will never forget sitting in front of the TV and this episode comes on and I don't remember anything else (laughs) about this episode except (laughs) that Robin got shot. Okay. Robin got shot. And there's this moment. Where Batman rushes to his side and wraps his arms around Robin and something happened in my what? little seven year old heart. And I was like, <laughs> what is happening? And then I remember Batman picking Robin up, putting him into the Batmobile oh my and fleeing off to safety. Right. <laughs> and it was this tiny little moment of like wumpy hurt comfort that yes. just like pierced me. At seven years old, okay? And then, and then, I would go to my best friend's house down the street, and we would play Batman and Robin, like, make-believe. And she wanted to pretend that she was, like, Batgirl and all that stuff, which I thought Batgirl was really cool, too. But you want to know what I was pretending? I was pretending that Robin got shot with a (laughs) bullet. And I had to, like, wheel him around in a wheelchair all day because poor little thing. He was recovering oh and he needed some help. Yeah, like, okay, like the lumpiest shit you can possibly think of. Amazing. And that was me at seven years old. And, like, I've had a soft spot so in my heart happy. for Robin, like, ever oh, since oh then gosh. because, like, <laughs> because, yeah, yeah, I used to pretend that, you know, I had to take care of him because he needed help
1: that's amazing so that that burt i mean Bert ward robin was a doll he yes. was so adorable i mean the outfit and he talked about how uncomfortable that outfit was because they had right. to pack it down so to speak yes he's supposed to be a little boy not a, he was a full-grown man when he played and um i mean and they those two are so fun to like see old interviews of because adam west is such a He's such an ornery guy. He was. yeah. And they like, there's all kinds of like sexual innuendos that they knew exactly what they were doing. And so like, it was a crossover hit. Like that show was, I didn't realize, but I watched these little clips and I mean, it was so insanely popular. All like the Hollywood stars of the day, they'd make cameos. Adam West and Burt Ward, they would get mobbed in the streets if they ever went out. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just like, because it was campy and hokey which like college students would find funny and they, and the adults would recognize the sexual humor of it. But then little kids, thought it was just the coolest thing they ever seen. It's colorful. It's not too violent. So parents let their kids watch it. I and mean, it's like a perfect kind of sneaky, it's sort of like Pixar movies are today. You know, they'll sneak in those little sexual jokes for the parents, adult humor, but it's got it all. And I mean, it was so, and like Burt Ward, like he says, like he's like, he's never met someone like Adam West who can make, He makes anything sound like sex. And he's so funny. And they were like best friends the rest of their lives. It's such like a, it gives me such warm feelings. I mean, I love that show. Not to mention the supporting cast was so good. Cesar Romero, he had like, he painted over his mustache, played the Joker there. Uh, Like he refused to shave that mustache. So if you look at the Joker, he's got a mustache, but it's painted white. I
0: remember that. Yeah. Uh,
1: I can't believe that I'm forgetting the Riddler, but he, with Frank Oh man, it's Frank something. He was so amazing too. If you like, if you yeah. watch the clips, like that laugh he just came out with. That
0: laugh was awesome. Or the penguin, the guy that played the penguin. Yeah. Like, I so love the penguin
1: episode. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. I normally know so all
0: these good. names, but I'm blanking. But
1: that's, <laughs> that show is near and dear to my heart. And I remember watching the feature film that they made over at my grandma's house. And as a kid, I just loved it. Like I still remember Shark Repellent Sprite. Good thing I had my Shark Repellent spray. <laughs> That's my and favorite so part of the whole movie. Hokey, um, <laughs> Catwoman, um, it, that one they had Eartha Kit played her, but I think in the feature film it is another gal. I can't remember her name, but the, just the whole thing was so good. So that was an early one. I did absolutely watch Batman the animated series. Okay, yeah, it's really yeah. a very high quality. Is that Kevin Conroy? Like he's so good as he's still Batman to me. And Batman Beyond, actually, uh, I also remember watching Batman Beyond, which is kind of a different thing, but it, that kind of played into Even the Losers. And then, of course, like, I think I didn't watch the Keaton films until they were on VHS. I uh, still have those VHS copies at my parents' house. But before Nolan came out, my big Batman film was Batman Forever with Val Kilmer, Chris O'Donnell, Tommy oh, Lee Jones, Val Jim Carrey. Oh,
0: that was probably one of my favorite.
1: Oh, my gosh. And I like I recognize it for what it is. But honestly, though, I also still I will I will fight for that movie like quite a bit <laughs> because it did like more so than so. And I love Michael Keaton, by the way, but more so, I think, than some of the previous films, they at least made an attempt to get into the psychology of Bruce Wayne. I will say that every interaction with Nicole Kidman was weird to me and that, that she was like the least professional psychiatrist in existence because like the right. second time they meet, she's like taking him on a date. She's like, well, you want to go on a date? Like he's her patient. <laughs> um, obviously, he's a fucked up guy. And it's like, yeah, I want to <laughs> date. You're hot. Val Kilmer. I love Val Kilmer. Oh, me too. Um, I really love him for Tombstone more. And Tombstone, this is just unrelated, goes down as one of the great film performances ever as Doc oh, Holliday. Oh, he was
0: so good in that. Oh, my God. I remember him from Willow as Mad Martigan.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was like hot shit in the <laughs> 90s. Um, I know. I and know. I've been meaning to watch this documentary about him, I think made by his son, but I haven't gotten it Oh, yet, it's
0: but, good. Um, I watched is it a good, couple months okay. ago. It's, it's very good. You'll like it. Yeah. Have
1: you ever seen, I'm sorry, this is, you can just cut this out if you want. But have you ever seen Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang? Yeah. He's brilliant in that too. And obviously Robert Downey Jr. is so good. But anyway, Val Kilmer, yeah, near and dear to my heart. Uh, He was my Bruce Wayne for a long time. And of course, Sarah and I talk about, we thought Chris O'Donnell was like the hottest thing ever (laughs) as Dick Grayson. And now it kind of like, it doesn't really work as Dick Grayson. If you're actually looking at the character to a certain extent, it's not, it's not terrible. Like it's not, that good but it's also not terrible and the supporting cast like they had to beg Tommy Lee Jones to do that movie he turned it down like a dozen times he finally was like fine I'll do it and he's he's so good in it and Jim Carrey's obviously so good anyway so that's like as a kid that like was my Batman movie and then Nolan films came out and that kind of blew my mind so
0: yeah I will say I really like the Nolan films I especially loved that James Newton Howard does the scores oh man
1: so good Still gives me chills when I hear that theme come in. Yes! Absolutely.
0: I will uh, look it up on YouTube sometimes just to hear the score. Because yeah, yeah. it's just phenomenal.
1: Yeah, it really is perfect. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I like those films too. Like, there's issues with him, like, now that I think, like, oh, I wish they'd done this. And it just, it seems like in Hollywood, no one is interested in Bruce as a father in that aspect of his life. Like, it's always his origin story or just him being a badass by himself. And now when I think of Bruce Wayne, the most important part uh, and the richest part of him has to do with how he, like, it's like he stumbled his way into having this enormous family and people who love him. And how did he do that? He barely knows how he did it. So the Nolan films don't get to that, but they're, they're enjoyable i'll still watch them for
0: sure so what you're saying is there's a massive opportunity in hollywood yes. right now to tell that story
1: right yes i am always <laughs> afraid they're gonna like fuck it up so
2: bad though. oh and they wait. that's the thing right that's the <laughs> but, thing so yeah. thank
0: god for fan fiction writers because that's where we can like explore bat family yeah. to our heart's content right because absolutely you know, <laughs> it's at least handled with care. Yes.
1: Like, there for, for one example, like in Discord, someone posted this announcement that the CW might be doing a Bat Family series. What? Instead of rejoicing, we were all like, oh, shit. <laughs> no, oh, would it no. be like live
0: action or are they thinking like yes, an animated like a live or?
1: action. Uh, I know, oh. I'd rather just do animated because, like, it's the creators of Batwoman, I think. Honestly, I've never seen that series but CW, in general, you know, you're just like, if there's something you really love, I don't want CW making it in general. Um, and this is from someone who does, like, I enjoy oh Supernatural God. for what it is.
0: Um, <laughs> I was just about to bring that up. Like, oh, yes. no. And I,
1: like, actually recently I have enjoyed um, Superman and Lois. Yeah. A lot yeah. more than I thought I would. But other than that.
0: Yeah. Did CW do Smallville as well, or was that another? different They did, network? yes. They did. Okay, that's what I thought.
1: I can't, it probably at the time was the WB. Well, I can't remember. It may have been CW already. But yeah, that was Smallville. Started out so good. Um, and then, <laughs> I, you know, I never watched the whole thing. But the first few seasons are very, very nostalgic for me.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I'm all about, I loved those first few seasons. You know, the thing with Smallville is that it came out at the wrong time for me because I was just going off to college that year for right, the first time. Right. So I had the opportunity to see the first couple of seasons. And then because of schoolwork and just all these new experiences,
2: mm-hmm. I never
0: like, you know, it kind of dropped out and everything. But I was telling Sarah, I had a, I had this gorgeous picture, like color photograph of Tom, mm-hmm. Welling, Tom Welling, you know, he a wet so Tom beautiful. Welling, you know, and I put it on my wall in in my dorm, you know, at college mm-hmm. and stuff. And and, you know, so I re- regretfully, <laughs> it, it just came out at the wrong time for me that I didn't have the time to be as fully invested as I would have liked to be because, oh, man. <laughs> he was beautiful. Tom and Ro- is Rosenbaum. Beautiful.
1: So beautiful. And really, honestly, I do think kind of an underrated performance as Clark. Like, I-, I think he did a great job as Clark. Michael Rosenbaum obviously blew it out of the park, uh, water, whatever. My metaphors are all. And I loved the Kents. I used to, like, see on Tumblr this weird hatred for John Schneider's John Kent which I do not understand. I loved John Schneider's John Kent. I think he was a realistic portrayal of a father doing what he could to protect someone he loved. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, that's oh, that'll be interesting then. That'll be interesting to see if CW ends up doing something I like know. that and we can all just have to cross our fingers that they don't like fuck yeah. it up too yeah.
1: bad. <laughs> so many ways to fuck it up, but yeah. Well,
0: here's the thing though. <laughs> think of it this way. Every time that a show comes out, whether it's good or bad, it often does inspire more fanfiction. True. So, this is either true. way,
1: yeah. You know, you know, it's like Titans has got, like, I haven't finished season three, but it has a Dick Grayson and a Jason Todd. And the general consensus in my Discord is that it's not, it's too bad because actually the acting's pretty good, but the writing is kind of all over the place. But we all actually love, well, I shouldn't say all, but most of us really love Curran Walters, his Jason Todd even though he's like a little shorter than we'd like (laughs) because Jason in the comics, Jason's supposed to be this like tall physical presence. Current's not so much that, but he is a fine little actor. Very happy to see any performance from him. So, it's, it's, it can be kind of a mixed bag.
2: No,
0: for sure. For I'll sure. So knock on wood. Not yeah, on wood. Knock on wood. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, I wanted to talk about problematic ships. <laughs> because you had brought it up, I think, when we started talking yeah. about- Like all my ships. Yeah, I know. And you were like, let's talk about problematic ships. And I'm like, okay. Because people who <laughs> know me and listen to the show know I'm no stranger to problematic ships. Good. You should have at least one. <laughs> yeah, I, I have quite a few. So I understand. I understand the draw and I understand the controversy. You guys, you and Sarah on Talkin' Fanfic have spoken many times about Wincest, for instance. Mm -hmm. Like, that was a huge thing in the 2000s you know like that's all there was before they introduced the cast character right yes yes. and i read so much princess and and and, yeah yeah and it was never like i don't know i mean they were adults so like it didn't really bother me you know and everything i'm like (laughs) i hope it's not because i'm from the midwest but it doesn't really freak (laughs) me out that much uh you know what though too like
1: you're talking about you missed the boat on smallville like i missed the boat on supernatural i really didn't. Watch it until um, way later, and still I haven't. I haven't completed the series. Probably watched a good ten seasons. I'm almost done with season ten, I think. And I hope to like finish it. I'm just kind of slow at it, but I watched for the acting mostly. I think the especially Jensen's performance, I think, is always really compelling. But they're all fun to watch on screen. But yeah, like once that's like yeah, like I said initially, I thought like that's weird, and now it's the only one I can really read. I think you know it's like the codependency and the. (laughs) <laughs> Probably the aesthetics of it. I'm just going to come up front with that. But
0: Well, I mean, you can't argue the aesthetics of it because honestly, like they're two very attractive they're so individuals. They're so beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> when you think I about, know. at least when I think about the lifestyle that yes. they live in canon. The lifestyle is not conducive to relationships Correct. with other people. Like, Correct. I'm sorry, they're always off somewhere else, and you can't have a relationship like that. Not really. And so <laughs> I know, and you know, like I don't know
1: why I'm not drawn into Destiny all because I I really enjoy seeing Cass and Dean on screen. I really love their interactions and Misha Collins is like so fun to watch, but for some reason on the page, I don't know why. I just it's for some reason I'm just not as drawn into it. I think because, like, Sarah pointed me to some of the very best authors when I started reading some of the Wincest. And she pointed me to Candlebeck. It's, like, so good. And I know there's, like, so many that i I just blanking. But at the top of my head, Candlebeck is one that stands out and, like, so good at, like, articulating. She writes a beautiful dean, for one. Like, someone, you know, carries all that sort of guilt and yet and, and the protectiveness around Sam and they are kind of their own worlds. And when you add that romantic element to it, it's almost always Sam initiating things because Dean just can't let himself have what he wants. Uh, it's always compelling to read about for sure. Now, when you're looking at the bat family, you have a cast of characters, and especially a cast of like attractive, in this case, a lot of attractive male characters. you know, It is automatically, you're going to just, you're going to have it. But, depending on who you're talking about. I mean, I don't really even care how brotherly they are, like cuz obviously I read one says so apparently it's not an issue. But uh I'd say though in the Bat family, to me one reason why I think Jason and Dick work is because they weren't raised together. They were barely in the same house together when Jason was Robin. They share common experiences being raised by Batman and Alfred, but there is more friction there and then just baggage. So that, and that's always a good starting point to grow a relationship. But other folks do, like, th- you can combine any of those characters in a romantic pairing and there's fan fiction of it. And I I always assumed no one gave a shit. And then I got on Tumblr and it turns out that's not the case.
0: Oh, um, so is there this big, uh, bat-sessed uproar on yeah, uh, Tumblr yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah,
1: bat is the term. Like, if you are curious, like, I always tend to think, like, people are kind of sensitive and it's probably a little overplayed. But if you did like if you um, search on Tumblr for like the tag bat there's some nasty posts. People are calling uh, other people disgusting and like, you know, just the reading in like morality onto fan fiction. Like you're not a moral person if you have. <laughs> I mean, let's just be blunt about it. Like, you know, like Dick and Damien having sex and like Dick is very much a brother or father figure to Damien. And so those characters in a romantic pairing. You know, it's not like most people's cup of tea. You know, people pair Bruce with any number of the Robins. And, you know, like, to me, it's like, whatever. They're, they're literally fictional characters. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it literally is not exploiting or hurting anybody. But some people don't feel that way. So I'm, like, very vocal about, like, you write what you want to write. And if you want to explore that, you go for it. Whether it's purely out of, like, an erotic motivation or if you actually want to look at, like, what kind of like a realistic character exploration of uh, a a reality in which this would happen. Like I've seen it both ways. And one thing I also would say is that I've found that no matter what pairing, if I don't think I'd like it, someone somewhere has done it pretty damn good. Like I was never someone who was drawn to like Bruce and Dick paired as a romantic pairing. They're not related, but you know, to me that's bad dad and Robin. But I don't remember how I got to it. I am a type of person like I, I'm not real close minded. I'll kind of click on anything if I think, I think I was curious. So I just like filtered and I searched for the top kudos in one of the stories. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was Bruce and Dick and a uh, romantic pairing. And I do believe it kind of leaned on the soulmates trope to do it. Or other people will use like, you know, ABO or other kind of like tropes to, to make these things work. But it was actually beautifully written. I mean, if you approach it like, like, actually, Bruce and Dick are only like 15 years apart. Bruce was a very young man when he adopted Dick. And you think it's it was just a very complicated, you know, relationship in a way. And also with the assumption that, you know, Dick was an orphan, but he never like Bruce, you can read into it that like Bruce is not his dad because he still thinks of John Grayson as his father and he always will. Yeah. Um, and Bruce was always careful not to overstep in that way because he was very careful about his own parents' memory. So, you know, all I'm trying to say is that like, no matter what the pairing, like, I mean, one don't like, don't read is the golden rule and you shouldn't be nasty to people because real people aren't being hurt. People will sign petitions to like litigate these things. And you just think about the time and money spent to do that when they could be like helping actual, you know, children or abusive relationships. like. Real people need real resources. Fictional people don't need real resources. But, you know, like it seems obvious to me. And I just think it's obvious that people should just like what you like. If it's well tagged, like you've said before, like dead dove, do not eat is like my favorite tag. Oh, yeah. If you see the tags and you click on it and you still leave a nasty comment, like, I don't know what to say about you because (laughs) you've you've gone out of your way to make someone's day worse. Like you've gone out of your way to make someone feel bad about something that they've created and put out there. So I don't know. It's like it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. I don't know if it's like this younger generation who gets interested in like as a 20 year old, I'd say I thought I had it figured out moral wise. And then you let 10 years go by and you realize the world's (laughs) more complicated. And I'll continue to hopefully move in that direction, hopefully. But yeah, I don't know. Tumblr's is weird breeding ground for stuff like that. And it's why certain Discord groups are very, like, they literally have to vet their members to make sure that we don't we call them antis and people that just go out of their way to take a shit on other people's, the things they like and love. I might not be into certain pairings or certain tropes, but I try to be open-minded. And if I don't want to read it, I just don't read it. But on a side note, I'd say that almost always, like I say, there's, like, I didn't think I liked ABO. In general, it's still not really my thing. But there was a story I can link you to later if you like but by uh, author called Maury Mitar and it was it's uh, a ABO fic and it's just like beautifully done it's a little lighter on the like biological imperatives but it is a story uh, it's a, it's about preconceptions and coming to understandings and the premise is like Dixon omega and he works at an alpha enrichment center where Jason is sent for remedial classes because he was caught in this situation and the courts ordered him to take classes in order to – Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, like if you're violent in public against – it's sort of like if you're committing a hate crime almost. Right, um, right. You need need the court system. It's like this very realistic take. Like if this was our world, you know, the court would order you. You have to go take an. It's like an anger management class. Like a sensitivity class. Yeah, anger management and stuff. it's so (laughs) well written – And, you know, and then like, so from Dick's perspective, Jason's like this, just he's a court or like his name gets um, flagged like a red flag, which means that (laughs) he's been court ordered. And he knows that those are always the most difficult students. So he comes in with certain preconceptions about Jason and Jason the other way. And then the plot thickens, so to speak, and you find out the situation was a lot more complicated than the court perceived. And, you know, Jason has to live with being perceived as a certain way. And anyway, they learn from each other and they, you know, it's a love story. So oh, that really was like, oh,
0: my gosh, it can be done in a way that I like. Yes, it can. It, it, like you said, you can always find something that will surprise yeah. you that yeah. you're, you're actually going to like, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just to That's eat the your thing own. It's it. that simple. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Please do link me that fake. Uh, I will. When I it's really sweet. It's really that sounds good. so sweet. I would absolutely. That sounds like something it's so right well my written alley. too.
1: Like, it, yeah, <laughs> I've re- I've read it several times.
0: I really love how you talked about you know at twenty you think you have everything figured out, and mm-hmm. I absolutely remember thinking that. I remember yes. thinking that much earlier in life, actually. like. I remember being 17 and 18, you know, and then being like, oh, my gosh, I'm so grown up. I'm so smart. I understand mm-hmm. the world and its complexities mm-hmm. so much better than my parents because I'm with it. Right. Yeah. Why don't they know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, there are times because I think about this whole like problematic, you know, discourse that runs around mm-hmm. and I stay so clear of it because I don't engage, you know, but it does come to my mind, you know, sometimes because you see it. And it does affect real people. And I was thinking, you know, sometimes I wonder (laughs) if part of the problem is that we live in a society that is so open to exposure to the discourse in the first place. Because these kids are growing up with complete and unfettered access to the internet, right? So the awareness of all of these issues and all of this language that we're using to have the discourse in the first place. They're being exposed to that at a very early age, Mm -hmm. and sometimes I get the impression that they are, because of that exposure, using these arguments or this language that they've picked up online, and they're trying to use it, and they're trying to be part of it, but because they lack the context and the maturity and the experience, it comes out. Out in a way that is completely like you know left yeah, like field. You never and off got the to take
1: driver's ed. You just
0: hand him the keys and you're like, okay, go yeah. have fun. You're like, no, yeah. And while I admire the impulse, right, to yes. be responsible, like adult, and all of that stuff, and I admire the impulse to try to understand things that you might not be understanding. Mm-hmm. I also have experience in the hindsight, like you said, to realize that. Jesus Christ, at 17 and 18, I knew nothing, Yeah, you know, at 30, like I knew so much more than I did at 18 and 19. I'm almost 40 now. And I know so much more than now than I did at 30. Yeah. You know, it's this progressive, hopefully, at least for most people, it's progressive, (laughs) like that time and experience just gives you this ability to see context and to understand the complexities of life situations and how nothing is black and white.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> I think that, and it, just parallel to what you're saying, it's like if I had a forum that made public every stupid thought I had at 20, it wouldn't have gone well for me. Like, <laughs> so I'm so grateful that, you know, or at like 15, you like, I was like, oh, give me something to make public, my every, like, every time I thought I was right about something, I'll just. It's like, no, 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 no. Keep that to yourself so that in five years you can actually forget that you said that. But now, <laughs> it's like you give them the, the means to, um, you know, it's like they're blogging. I don't I don't know. I'm honestly kind of a Luddite for my generation, but it's, it's just, uh, it's like, yeah, too much at once. Or sometimes I think, you know, it's natural as a youth to be kind of rebel the mainstream. And if the mainstream seems to be, I'm going to say, like, relatively progressive, at least when you compare it to 20 years ago, then the, the rebelling part would be it's kind of a an allergic reaction and you would actually come at it with more conservative impulses. Uh, a weirdly, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that's uh, the case. that makes so much... No, that makes so much sense. The more experience I've had in this world, the more that you've realized that best way is usually somewhere in the middle. If you make a human interaction with someone and try to see their perspective, there's at least usually,
0: some way of humanizing and communicating without just screaming at each other. Yeah, and I would agree with that. That's also probably an aspect of this whole thing that we're talking about, too, is not only are these kids having the exposure to these arguments and this language that they're using, and not only are they trying to rebel, because that's natural at their age Mm -hmm. to want to do that, but also, like, we also live in this society where You know, our interactions with other people are becoming more and more impersonal as we interact with people more on social media, on blogs, on this and that. And we're losing, to some extent, in fandom, too, we're losing that personal connection where, like you said, when you have that opportunity to sit down with a person that doesn't maybe agree with you, right? But you're having this one-on-one conversation and you can see them and meet them as a human being.
1: So different. Yeah.
0: It's so different.
1: (laughs) You don't get to just scream at them.
0: Yeah. You're not going to scream or tell them that they deserve to die or, you know, (laughs) any of those things. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, not to say that there wasn't drama in old school fandom, too, because of course there was. There always has been. Always has been. Yeah. But the civility of it, I think, has just like, I don't know. It's just gotten really radical in the yeah. last. I always think like while. it's like
1: you know why you know our parents' generation before got along so well. It's because they didn't talk about politics or they didn't <laughs> talk yeah. at, at least as much. You know, there's a certain right, polite right. distance that, in some ways, is healthy. Like you
0: know, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. I'm here you. I'm that way with all the fandom stuff too. Because like. I don't want to, I'm not going to engage with it, man. I will say my piece on the show and I will not engage. Yeah, other than that, absolutely. So. <laughs> and that's why
1: it's like, like I put right on my Tumblr. I put unapologetic bat shipper and I put don't like, don't read. And <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, you just don't, if all you have to say is hateful things, don't engage with me. But at the same time, I'm willing to talk about, you know, like, why do you, why do you think that that's so gross? Like, what is your problem with it? So hopefully it's just kind of something that, is a little overplayed maybe and isn't quite as bad, but I don't know. Tumblr always makes things look worse, probably.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it probably just really depends, I think, on everyone's (laughs) uh, individual experiences because I've never experienced that. I've never once had anyone come to me and, you know, make a big deal about anything like that or tell me that I should go die. So I must be fortunate that way. But in the same vein, I know that there have been people that have experienced that. And that's extremely unfortunate because that should never be happening. Do we not all remember as nerds like being othered all the time? <laughs> I know in yeah. high school, right? Do we not all remember what that was like? Why are we doing it to each other too? Like I know, I just because let's be
1: honest, like most people that write fan fiction probably aren't the quarterback of the football team. <laughs> exactly, and you know what? That's great. I'm actually and like this story I'm <laughs> running right now with um, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner ha- has all this stuff. This is like unrelated, but I'm having to do a lot of research on American football. I'm a huge baseball fan, as you said, but Guy Gardner is canonically a football player. I'm actually working baseball into it anyway, because that's just what I do. Of course, of course. But I'm having to (laughs) research a lot into football and also just try to get this perspective of a guy who did play football. And it it does like, it's another way that kind of humanizes athletes for me. And then like watching interviews with athletes and watching documentaries. That's how I got into sports in the first place. Just like weirdly from a bookish perspective, like reading about sports and like watching documentaries about sports, I'm still not an athletic person, but I love watching and reading about sports and the sports history, which is kind of a weird way to approach it. But I think like that whole, you know, arena of, of everyday life just was not my reality. And I think it's like, it's exposing me to, um, I don't know, different people and an appreciation for athletics, maybe that I didn't previously have. Cause If you're bookish and kind of nerdy growing up, it's so easy to look at athletes and kind of turn your nose up a little bit at it, at least if you were me in high school. Even like my best friend is actually very athletic, but more and more I am so open to, I don't know, different experiences and uh, people you think like in high school that you judged for whatever way that you judged. Like now I'm more curious about them and what kind of people they were. Fan fiction helps me with that.
0: Fan fiction does encourage that curiosity of exploration Mm -hmm. into other people's experiences and other people's lives that may not look like ours. And I think that that is such a beautiful part of what makes it so amazing. I loved your stories that I read in preparation for this interview. The first one I read was Even the Losers, which is your Bat Family. And oh my God. Okay, there were so many things that I loved about it. First of all, (laughs) first of all, The imagery was just beautiful. In the first part, you talk about Bruce kind of being like a ghost on his own property. And the way you describe Dick's world being lifeless and, you know, colorless and all that stuff. And then here comes Dick, you know, here comes little Robin. Into his world and the way that you describe, like, even Dick's bright costume colors, you know? Yes. Just adding life to it. Just as a traffic to- light. Yes. And I had never thought about that before, but I thought back to it and I was like, oh, yeah, like, Batman's color scheme is kind of, you know, a little monochrome and dark <laughs> and a little dreary and everything. And then here comes yes, Robin and he's just Robin. like, bam,
1: you know, <laughs> with his bright costume. Yeah, I'm not the first one to do that by far. Like the trope of Robin being the light in the darkness for Bruce or for Batman, it's like hard to justify because you're like, actually, as a superhero, it would be super dangerous to be dressed like a traffic light <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and when you're fighting at night. You wouldn't want to do it. And that's what like some people, uh, some Batman fans uh, don't think Robin makes sense. And, and there's reasons for it. But for those of us that do believe in Robin and that Robin is good for Batman you know, it, you can justify it as like he acts as a distraction for for criminals so that Bruce can do his thing. But whatever reason you use it is kind of metaphorically powerful as he has a light in the darkness. Dick Grayson is, his background is the circus. He was an, a world-class aerialist from the time he was very little. So yeah, he's original flavor Robin. And to me too, I think like writing this helps articulate a lot of things for me that I th- think about um, Bruce and his family, But one is that I th- I think, talking about the image of ghosts, but I think that young Bruce was probably like, at least passively suicidal, like his mission and like, he was so traumatized over the death of his parents. Like, this is a guy who made it his life's mission to every moment, you know, like he was dedicated to turning himself into a, a kind of weapon, whether it was his body or his mind and honing himself. And this is a guy who, to me, and I say it in there, like he didn't picture himself living past 30 that makes sense to me when i think about just the the batman origin story is that he initially he's gonna fight crime as long as he could the cowardly and superstitious lot of criminals as, as classic batman puts it and dick changes everything for him like he sees himself he's a, it's like he's doing his thing and then one night he goes to the circus as bruce wayne and this little boy loses his parents right in front of him and it's like in spite of himself, the self-centered person in a way, a self-oriented person, like he can't help but see himself in Dick Grayson and he can't help but adopt him. And in spite of himself, he gains a reason for living a little longer. Yeah,
0: it changes his whole life Yeah, because you're right. Like, I thought you did a really great job at making sure that we understand what Bruce is. What's the word I'm looking for? like intellectually and psychologically yeah. where he was coming from before yes. that event. Right. Yes. Because you're right. Like he just kind of had this resigned. Well, I guess I'll just keep living until I die. And he yeah. was fine with it, you know, like, yeah. Okay. And then his first kid that he had tops just changes that whole thing. And now it's like, I have a reason to live now, you yeah. know, and yeah. that kind of changed with every kid that comes into his purview which I thought was so beautiful. And I I also got the sense that like, even though this changed his life for the better, I got the sense from your story that he still struggled with it. You know, that it's difficult learning how to be a parent, right? It's difficult learning how to do that correctly and not fail a thousand times. And you're going to fail a thousand times. And what do you do with those failures? You know, like, that struggle just
2: yeah ugh.
1: that's it like the part of the fun was like this was actually written for a, a summer fan fiction exchange and like originally i didn't know exactly what it, what it was going to be but i knew that i wanted to do something with the family and it was this story that really helped me like f- figure out differences in each of these personalities and some of their motivations but like yeah i think with bruce he doesn't like change necessarily he's a control freak in a way and he's very much a creature of logic. Like, he is the intellectual side of Bruce, is classically supposed to be like a detective. And I don't know, like, being a father, you can't always be so logical. But like, w- one thing I discovered was so, like, taking Jason on kind of made sense because at that point in his life in canon, he and Dick aren't really getting along, and, and Dick's moved on from Robin. So the position's kind of open, and Jason so obviously needs someone to rely on and someone to stand up for him and and protect him and so it's so easy to drop jason no like tim was more difficult because actually when i came to the tim portion you know i had to be like well why the fuck does he let tim be robin it doesn't actually make sense because he just like jason just died and the guilt there and the responsibility of that death had to have weighed on him heavily and in canon like he he gets darker they killed jason off primarily because the reading public wanted a darker Batman and Jason wasn't a super popular Robin in the first place. Cause he was just so different. And if you put it in context, like Dick Grayson had been Robin for like 40 years or something. And they were finally making the decision to age him out and make a Nightwing. And then he joins the teen Titans, as Nightwing and sort of becomes his own hero. And in the meantime, they thought, well, we need Robin then. So they created Jason and then they realized, well, actually the reading public's a little, they, they don't really like Robin anymore or something. I can't remember if you're aware of um, how Jason was killed off in terms of publication, but but there was a, a call in. And you call this number if Jason lives and you call this number if Jason dies. And, oh, no uh, kidding. Like yes. American Idol style. Yes, they decided oh, that they God. thought they wanted to kill him. The death of oh, the family shit. story arc was leading up to it. And at the back of the, it, it would be like Batman number four. 28 or something like that because i think he dies in 429 or 430 somewhere in there it doesn't matter it's in the late 80s yeah in the back of the issue like what happens next call this number and, and robin lives call this number and robin dies oh
2: and there's like God. some
1: conspiracy theories about like there may have been an auto dialer involved oh, shit. Um, that someone used in order to i had this tumblr post where like all these letters came in after jason was killed and most of them are like thank God the little bastard's dead. Uh, oh like, my God. They weren't really, no, they didn't say bastard, but like, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's kind of like, so sad to see Jason gone, but very excited for Batman to continue and do his Batman thing. Like, I think in general, they wanted that darker, grittier Batman. So, you know, that was really interesting, but this is a long digression. I apologize. But then it's like, well, how did that, all that being said, they brought in Tim somewhat soon after that, So maybe all that was, I don't know exactly why, but Tim gets brought in. And if you look at it psychologically, it doesn't really make sense for Bruce to let him anywhere near the Batcave, but they end up doing, oh, it's this little persistent detective. And he finds out who Nightwing is. and He finds out who Batman is himself. And he comes to them and says, uh, actually, he comes to Dick and says that Batman's not doing well. He needs Robin. You need to be Robin again. And Dick's like, "Uh, I am out of that. Have nothing to do with that. Good luck, kid. (laughs) Because he's done with Bruce's shit, you know. And there's like baggage after Jason dies. Yeah. And uh, Tim persists anyway. And there's this goofy storyline where he, like, Tim Drake dresses up as Robin and saves Nightwing and Batman from Two-Face. And it's just kind of like, it's pretty hokey. And I thought, I can't do that. That's so dumb. He's just a kid. He has no training. But he's intelligent. So, like, that's how that, like, Tim section, I thought, ended up making sense, at least, to me, in that he, like, slowly, accidentally becomes Robin because Bruce doesn't really know what else to do with him because he's this weird kid that keeps showing up. His parents are never home, so then Bruce is like, well, he can't be by himself at home, so I guess he can hang out here when your parents aren't home. You know who I am, so you might as well watch the bat computer. While you're at it, you might as well know self-defense. Uh, do you know? Right. You know and it, like, he yeah. slowly accidentally trains him as Robin, and that was kind of a cool discovery for me. Like, I didn't plan that, but it happened. And actually, I mean, a lot of this, like, I didn't properly plan, and that's important to me. Like, he, you have an idea of kind of what you want to do, but be open to exploration. Yeah, that's how the Tim section happened. Like, originally, I, I think I intended. Then to, I'm like, oh, I can do a section with every member of the Bat family. And then I was like, oh, man, this is, I don't have time because I was on a deadline. <laughs> so I just like, so I picked the the perspectives that I thought I could do some justice to. And it's like kind of odd because it was for a J-Dick exchange. So there's not actually that much J-Dick in it. But I did attack on that last scene. Actually, because Sarah's like, uh, you might want to put some J-Dick in for this J-Dick fanfiction <laughs> exchange. I was like, shit, you're right. Um, so oh, he's no. kind of like, okay, hey, you know what? <laughs> they got married.
0: <laughs> um, I loved that though. I loved it because, like, to me, and, and this is probably just my own like unique perspective on it because I didn't know all of this background stuff, right? This is kind of me coming in fandom blind. So it was helpful for me as a fandom blind reader to be like, oh, what a great introduction to all of these characters that I know nothing about. Because Dick and Bruce and Jason are the only ones that I've ever heard of. And so all these others, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, You know, Tim and the girls and and Damien and all Uh these people. And even with the inclusion of all of those little backstories and how it relates back to Bruce and all of that, I still did feel like this was very much a Jason Dick story just because on top of all of that, This huge part of the story, I felt like anyway, was Jason's very complicated feelings about his connection to this bat family. What does that mean? He's been away for so long, and they all say, Oh, we miss you, and where have you been, and blah, 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 (laughs) blah. And he's doing his best to be like, Fuck you, I don't care. Secretly like, please love me. Yeah, secretly like, please love me. Like, secretly like, these are still my people. And that rang so true to me. That struck so hard because I was just having this conversation with my own sister a couple of days ago, actually, which is really funny that then I, you know, go in to read this story and I'm like, oh my God, this is so relevant. But like, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to go into my own family history, but suffice it to say that family is so complicated. Yeah, Just because you have people that are related by blood does not mean that the family stays together or keeps in contact or any of that stuff. And so I I feel like Jason's struggle with that concept of family was just so moving for me because I relate to it so much of just like, you want that connection, but there's so much history and so much baggage in so many things that went wrong where do you go from there you know how do you fix that can you fix that i don't know, you know?
1: yeah <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that and like for me jason is the heart of it too like and it's just naturally because he's my favorite character like i think of all the sections i am i'm most proud of that one of all the stories i've written so far that's in my opinion my best writing is in that one and for me too the, the jason voice just came a little more naturally but i think too just because i've i've thought so much about him i mean it's kind of weird how much i think about (laughs) jc
0: todd well yeah he's like your uh your you know your favorite right yeah
1: Yeah. and like it's this like wonderfully compelling combination of like he's self-righteous in that he knows that he's gotten a shitty hand in life and yet he's also got a lot of like guilt and shame a lot of people will write him as someone who just blames everything on Bruce. You can do that, but I think, to me, it's a combination of, yeah, Bruce let him down, but he harbors a lot of guilt. He died because he walked into a warehouse and he shouldn't have. Now, Bruce should have known, like, this is a kid. Obviously, this kid's going through a lot of shit. And Bruce didn't really recognize where Jason was mentally in that moment. Because he tells him, you know, then he says, stay here, I'll come back. Just watch the warehouse. Don't go in. Jason goes in. And... To me, Jason's psychology makes more sense if he shoulders the blame of that on himself and the shame of I shouldn't have gone in, why'd I go in? And I've written, sort of has some works in progress for why he did go in and it has to do with, finds out his biological mother's involved and, you know, this doubt about his own place as Bruce's son, maybe because of these issues that have come up involving a character named uh, Felipe Garzonas. So I love using canon to try to, like, create this story. But long story short, you know, the, he's a complicated character and he's kind of the, the heart of a lot of that story. Um, I, I loved just toot Man horn. Like, there's this um, story called More Time by Judd Winnick also. And that's, I don't know if you remember the watch that Bruce gives. Uh, he puts a watch on Jason before he buries him. Yes, there's a watch. Yes, there's a watch. So that, that I made that up, but it refers to a watch that shows up in this... Adorable little comic piece called More Time. That became kind of a symbol for, like, to Bruce, this is his son. He gives him his father's, like, Thomas Wayne's watch. In in this little comic piece, Jason fixes it for him and gives him as a birthday present. It's just a really sweet little piece. But so I took that broken watch, Thomas Wayne's watch, and I had him give it to Jason. He's buried in it. And then, so Jason wakes up and he's all alone, but he does have this watch on his hand, which should be a sign of, you know, paternal love. But he just doesn't quite believe it. So he gives it to Damien. And then when Bruce meets Damien, he sees him with a watch. And it's, I don't know. It's like this, these little canon things that I tried to work in were a lot of fun. And kind of like, can be very moving if you can work stuff like that in. And little points of connection and stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because it just brings that human aspect into it. You know, yeah. that human aspect. And I love, I love your interpretation of Jason when you said that you try to tend to write him. As, you know, a more balanced character, I guess, in the middle, which is so funny, because right. that's kind of who you are, like, personality wise, too, like, kind of, you try to stay moderated and balanced and all that. So I can absolutely see why that would be your interpretation. But, but I love that, because as I'm, as I'm sitting here, that would be very true to life. If they were real people, of course, he would feel guilt. And anger. You can feel both at the same time. Yes. Right? All is the mix of both. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's like these themes of like, and you'll find them in the comics, like redemption and, and coming up from rock bottom. And that's all very much Jason Todd stuff. And that's why he's so compelling. Like he, he crawls, like literally crawled out of a grave, but like his, his journey back to the family is kind of just as rough in a way. Even with everyone saying, we love you. Like there's just so much baggage in the way and
0: oh yeah yeah that stuff is so so hard especially when it's your family you know yeah it is so hard i'm so fascinated by the psychology in families (laughs) events happen and it is fascinating to me that everybody could be there and witness the same event or experience the same event and everybody has wildly different right. memories of it, <laughs> interpretations of it. Yeah. You know, it is so interesting to me. And I saw a lot of that in your story. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so true. Like, that's right. exactly what happens. You right. know, exactly what happens. That's a, the fun thing about Dick and Jason, too,
1: is that, like, you'll find it in Phantom, But I think it holds true with canon, too, that, like, Jason sees Dick Grayson as, I mean, he first of all, he's the original Robin. but He's Nightwing. He's like this infallible, kind of badass, beautiful, can do no wrong, and he sees like that he'll never live up to that, and that like he dicks some kind of golden boy. But then you look at it from Dick's perspective, and like Bruce basically fires him or tells him that he needs to move on. He has all this friction with Bruce, and then Bruce brings in this little kid, and gives him his uniform and gives him his mantle. And it, from from that perspective, Dick feels like the black sheep, and it's just this like weird. You know, they each have their own issues with Bruce and they each view each other kind of as the favored son at different points in the timeline. And so it's like trying to come to a point of understanding with both of them. Yeah. That <laughs> it's like, what really happened there?
0: Yeah, exactly. Just the struggle of that. We referenced William Faulkner a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Talk about perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. The struggle of the human heart. And sometimes it is that internal struggle that's the hardest to overcome, but the most interesting to explore. So absolutely, absolutely, I felt like that's what was going on here it was uh, really just an exploration of Jason's internal struggle here. Not only that, okay, but, but the way that you wrote this was just beautiful. There were so many lines in here. I already told you that that one section where you personify the Bat family as a character And describe all of the things that happened to this family or this character. It was just beautiful. It made me cry in the the best way possible. It was so great. But there were so many other parts, too. Like this one. This is from, well, I don't remember which section this is from. But I'm going to read this out here. I do believe this is from Jason's point of view. And it goes, I got you, kid. I won't let you fall. It's stupid how hard it hits him. How painfully it brings him to his knees in a second like Frankenstein's monster peering in at happier times, separated by so much more than the thinness of a windowpane. He hears a familiar bark of laughter, somehow cutting through the roar, and it just hollows him out. And I loved that, because it was kind of what we were talking about before, where, you know, he has this fuck-off attitude of, I don't care, but really, like, he really does miss his family. You know? Yeah. He really does.
1: And that's the hard part, too, is that, like, it's, from Jason's perspective, So Yeah, that's in the Jason section, and it's that line, I've got you, kid. That is from canon. It's from a Nightwing year one when he um, catches Jason. Jason's Robin, and Nightwing reaches over and pulls him up from the side of a train he almost misses. So he literally pulls him up like that. That's from canon. There is a very similar scene in another Nightwing issue when Tim's Robin, and they're train surfing together. Actually, there's this, like, Jason's not mentioned much in that Nightwing series, unfortunately, but there is, it's like issue twenty-six, twenty-five, 25 or 26, something like that. And they have this moment actually where they do discuss Jason because Tim says, do you ever think about the other Robin? And Dick, you can kind of see him shutting down. He's like, I don't know, sometimes he doesn't say much about it. And Tim says, I think about him all the time because Tim is comparing himself To him, Jason's the standard he's never going to meet because Jason made the ultimate sacrifice. This is Tim's perspective, which is not at all what Jason thinks of himself. So he's trying to live up to Jason's reputation. It's like they're all comparing each other to each other, which is not good. Um, Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, though, that Jason's death changed everything. And it made Nightwing a better brother to Tim than he ever was to Jason. And so it's like this beautiful scene of like Tim and Dick bonding to Jason. It's a sign that he never was loved. And it's, this is what he always wanted and he never got because he wasn't good enough for Dick. But what Dick would say is that, no, you fucking idiot. You changed everything. I was a terrible Nightwing and I didn't know it. And then you died. And then it was this wake up call that he needed to be in Robin's life. And so he he's present in the comics for Tim in a way that he was never present for Jason, and it's because of Jason. But yeah, yeah, you know, so like that that kind of moment where Jason just feels like piece of trash, like he feels like the a discarded piece of trash,
0: right, right, on the outside looking in. Yeah,
1: and, and it's like not oh. the case, but it's how he builds this picture of the family for
0: himself and it's
1: yeah i don't know that it gives me chest pains thinking about it too. yeah i know <laughs>
0: yeah his interpretations are heartbreaking so heartbreaking but yeah there are parts like that all over the place oh, i you. loved this um there was one other section i wanted to read out really quick it's very short but because of under the red hood i you know knew that jason had died and come back and everything so this part where you said and again i think this is also from jason's perspective but um, it says for someone who's already been buried in the cold, dark earth, he can't seem to find a way to be still, quiet, at peace inside. And I just thought, ah, first of all, that's beautiful, you know. <laughs> and second of all, like that reference to his past, you know, being dead and buried, and then coming back to life, and ever since coming back, all he wants is that peace and the quiet.
1: Yeah, I try to emphasize that there is like inner turmoil that I'm sure you know about it, like. Y- y- when you're going through an unstable period in your life and and you're just kind of hating on yourself all the time, it's exhausting and yes. you just you just want to be okay with yourself and you just want you know that's where that a very human feeling. It, it's not necessarily suicidal. I think almost everyone has that idea that like it's like not, you don't want to die, you just don't want to wake up tomorrow because the next day is going to be so exhausting or whatever. Right. Um. Right. I don't think I've felt that. I mean, like Jason's feeling, but it is a very human feeling and. and it was me trying to also kind of think about why he would then the next scene is him contacting Tim about the existence of Damien feeling for one moment. Like he actually is a part of him that wants to be the good guy. I mean, yeah, he believes in Red Hood's mission, but at the same time, there's always this feeling of being an antagonist, you know, like he's aware of it and he's a little tired of it. So then he has this first in the timeline, anyway, the first conversation with Tim and that, Like Tim and Jason, brotherhood to me, it makes a lot of sense to me as a brotherhood. Some people pair them romantically, and that's fine. But to me, they kind of have a special, at least in this version, a special kind of brotherhood. And their personality is actually really kind of fun to interact with each other.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that came through in the writing. Absolutely. So, And I'm so glad that we got to dig into it a little bit because a little bit of a revelation to me in a very good way about how Dick's experience with Jason affected his relationship with Tim. So, like, oh, my God, that just makes it, like, so much better for me. I love that. Now, I'm super curious because, obviously, like, you wrote this whole thing. Is there a line or a section from this story that's your favorite that you wanted to talk about a little bit? I know, and you
1: cued me up for that. I guess what I came up with, because... I don't want to sound cocky, but th- this is a story that I, I, like, I'm like. i proud I wrote. and I know it's not perfect, but I had fun writing it, and it's the only one that I can go to right now and read and, and not kind of cringe a little bit about certain things. I thought, this is actually, this turned out well. I like how it turned out. And I liked how the Jason section in particular turned out. I enjoyed writing Damien, too, actually. But I think with the Jason section, it came out pretty close to how I wanted it. And I don't know about a line, but the scene I had maybe the most fun with The text exchanges were fun, I'd say. And it was a good mental break, both for the reader and the writer, by the way, because I thought, this so much angst, I need something a little lighter. So that's why I kind of interspersed there, more for my own sake, almost. But that scene where Bruce meets Jason up on the um, suspension bridge tower... Yes. They have the interact like they call Waylon who's Killer Croc in the um comics. (laughs) They call him in the pizza. Like I made all of that up. I I know and I don't know where I came up with it. I think I was in like a a goofy mood and I thought, what if he lives under a pizza parlor? Yeah, he's got a landline. That's like that's one of the funny things to do is like Bruce is so overcomplicated. And then there are these moments where you know you could just call him like what? Yeah, he lives under a pizza parlor. Just call Rudy's Pizza, ask for Waylon, and they'll hook him down to you. He's like, what? And actually, it's like Waylon is interesting because like, he is a member of Batman's rogues gallery for sure. But they had this weird thing in the New 52 where one of the outlaws, Jason's best friend uh, in that series, Roy Harper, he has his own addiction problems, and he bumps into Killer Croc, and it becomes like the scene of, like instead of death by cop, it's uh, sort of death by Croc. And, in other words, he was... He was suicidal, yeah, and he engages with Killer Croc in order to to kill himself because he's in so much psychological pain. And Croc actually, like, Wayland recognizes this, and he's like, hey, kid, I think you need some help. It's like, what? And he sort of becomes his sponsor, like, his AA sponsor. And so I had that in mind as, like, well, what if there's, like, what if, like, there are certain rogues that I, I just don't. Having in me to try to humanize like the joker i just i can't do it he's too twisted but with <laughs> right, some of the right. other ones like selena especially obviously and then waylon to me is a really fun one because he was like he's born disfigured and he grows up like that so it's i know you, we were going to talk about the ugliness thing and the self-image thing but for waylon i feel like he's a great one to try to humanize especially given that piece of canon and so like jason has his <laughs> jason calls him up and gets this information that Bruce is looking for. Like, it's kind of a funny scene, obviously. And tie-in, I know it may have been confusing, because I actually did tie-in. Bruce never dies in this part of canon, but in this part of canon, he actually gets shot back in time. I tagged it in the description, but I don't know. Basically, Bruce kind of quote-unquote dies, and then he gets back to his own time. But this is shortly before that happens, and it kind of hints at events of Final Crisis which I don't really understand because it was written by Grant Morrison and Morrison's kind of notoriously a complicated story arc person. But uh, I took what I wanted to understand of it and I kind of tried to weave that in a little
0: bit. No, it was great. It was so great. I didn't quite understand how he was dead and then back again. I know. I was like, people are going to be confused, but oh well. Yeah, that was my own like fandom blindness, like coming back to kick me in the ass. So I just kind of okay. accepted it and was like, "Yeah, he got yeah, shot back this is in cool. time,
1: Pants Clue, <laughs> and uh, he had to fight his way back through time." It's a zany, goofy part of comic canon, but actually, it's it's kind of fun too. But it's it's time travel. Yeah, it's I
0: loved that the death scene was there, though, or not the death scene, but the death circumstance was in there, though, because like. You know, (laughs) and this is so awful to say, but sometimes when families are broken apart a little bit or struggling with their relationships or whatever, sometimes that death of someone in the family kind of means that the family gets to come together a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And I like, I had that in my mind in in a longer term
1: to revisit that maybe, um, or originally I wanted to write because then in canon, Dick Grayson becomes, temporarily becomes Batman. And to me, I thought maybe that's when Jason feels a little safer to come home without the kind of the emotional baggage of Bruce being there. Maybe he comes in to help Dick a little bit, but I just didn't have time to write any of that. But yeah, definitely. I think it gave me enough reason to bring Jason home in that case.
0: Yeah, it was just, oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then, of course, you know, the ending scene between him and Dick was just so sweet. And it was just like, oh like happy ending like this is so good <laughs> husbands you know? yes. Um, yes
1: sarah pushed me to write that scene um she did con- she contributed a few really nice lines so i'll definitely give her credit for that uh, as i put in the notes and that yeah it just became a fun scene like she wrote i think she wrote the line i've read it right in the notes there like i didn't i'm not saying i love you cuz i have to or something like she she wrote a couple really nice lines and she wrote the uh garbage barges line Let's go watch the garbage. But I thought it was really special. And then when I thought it was done, she's like, I just think it needs something a little more. And I think you need to write it yourself. And that was true. And so that last little paragraph in Dick's head then was written by me at her cheerleading just about like, I don't know where they've been and where they are now. And the love of Bruce and this weird kind of fucked up family that, yeah, that came out. I'm really glad that came out okay, too. But that was also a fun scene to write, for sure.
0: Yo, absolutely. It was just so, it was so sentimental, you know, like, yeah. because in that scene, you see a slightly different Jason, I felt like. Yeah, because this a little is more at peace. Well, a little more at peace, but also a little more willing to be vulnerable, you know? Yes, I
1: think that had to happen.
0: Yeah, when he says to, uh, to Dick, Kind of forgot about our anniversary a little bit, but you know, honestly, like every day that you don't leave me is like know. A, a celebration. <laughs> it's an anniversary to me. I don't know that Jason would have been able to say that, you know, like the earlier iteration of Jason would have been able to be that soft and that vulnerable. That, that's a very difficult thing to admit to someone. Yeah.
1: And it's still like it's there's the common theme is that he's still in awe of Dick Grayson and that yeah. changed, which is cool. Yeah. Like there's literally a canon line in the uh red hood annual where it has this scene where he goes to see it they write in canon that jason actually saw dick perform as a flying grayson when he's a little kid and oh no is like, i know and there's this line and you know all jay dickers are like what where he says he was the most amazing thing i'd ever seen that's in canon and of course it means in a very like brotherly or else just like non-sexual way uh non-romantic way and of course us and jay dick land were like hello oh love- that's yes. so special but th- there's yeah that he was robin he looking up to nightwing and in some ways he's still robin looking up to nightwing and i, I love that
0: is. love that oh, idea yeah that's so crush beautiful. never went away yeah i know i know <laughs> it's oh pretty adorable that's awesome now, I want to make sure that we get to talk about your other fic, Jealous Guy, sure. which is super cool for lots of different reasons that I will get to here. But this was one that you co-wrote with your sister, Sarah, which is amazing. And so like, I kind of wanted to go into a little bit about what that process looks like, because I see a lot of people on the fan fiction writing forum on Reddit kind of asking questions like that. They've never co-wrote anything with a partner before, but they're curious about what that looks like. Since you have experience with that, I would love to hear what that experience is for you. And then I also just kind of wanted to talk about the story itself because I read this one twice. The first time I read it, well, it was me going in fandom blind again, you know? Sure, which is hard. And then I asked my brother like a million questions like, what is this? What is that? And he introduced me to the concept of cores and what those are and all this stuff. So I kind of got a little bit of background from my brother David about what this whole lantern core is and stuff. And then I went back again, and I read it again. And God damn, it hit me different the second time oh <laughs> going in. Where I was just like, "Oh my god!"
1: <laughs> it's like if if Batman canon is confusing, Green Lantern canon is maybe more confusing. And I like I'm newer to Green Lantern land. It's me also again picking and choosing what I want to include. But yeah, so it initially was my idea because i started reading peter tomasi's he's got the series green lantern core and there is a story in there and, a, and an issue where kyle literally dies clinically he's dead and then he comes back to life but before that happens Kyle gardner gets sent a red ring of rage and he's he's like he screams kyle's name and it's this whole like all across the page he's like kyle and very much have like this little odd couple romance, not romance, bromance, I should say, in the series. It's so much fun. And I was just like, wow, that's that's really gay. I, or I should make that gay, <laughs> which I love. Um, and I told Sarah about it. She's like, oh, man, yeah. I think I started to write it. And then uh, so we, we work on Google Docs. I think the key to it working is just, I mean, you've got to like and trust the person you're writing with. And you have to be able to say, like, you have to be able to assert what you like and don't like and come together on the things. And, and we're pretty, I mean, we're just, I don't mind saying, uh, hey, I don't, I'm not sure that works that well. Or what do you think about this? And we're, you know, we, we can just say it because we're sisters. And actually we tend to think pretty parallel anyway. So I'm lucky in that you like, we're literally twins. So but she was just helping edit and at some point she actually wrote full credit for it she wrote the scene i think i started to write the scene at the bar where kyle sketches guy i may have started that but she pretty much wrote that whole scene It's just i was like oh she's like you don't have to use it i was like of course i have to use it you just have writer's credit like let's just both write it and then like i was more familiar with different pieces of canon so i kind of like had more to do with that and then she just wrote these little human moments Probably, honestly, I think the best parts of that story were probably written by her. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'd say we're kind of 50-50 on the writing credit for that one. And just that we were both so uh, quickly, I think, in love with Guy Gardner. And then Kyle's, like, such a sweetie. The thing that I want to improve on in in that story is that I don't feel like I have as clear of an idea of who Kyle Rayner is as I would like And I was a little concerned, like, if there's a little too much Jason Todd in my Guy Gardner or vice versa. Because there's some parallels to them. There's some things in common, but there's some things that are quite different, too. And the guy does not have the baggage that Jason does. And he's got a little more of an ego on him in some ways. You have to have an ego to carry a Green Lantern ring, I think. Because you have to be able to overcome self-doubt and fear. uh, Right! And use (laughs) the ring in the first place. (laughs) Yeah! So anyway, that's. But there was something about that dynamic that I really loved. And I gave her the idea, and she's like, yes, excellent, yeah. And we went from there. So, yeah, it's
0: it's a fun pairing. Do you guys coordinate what scenes you're going to each write, or do you guys just separately come up with scenes and then find a way to, like, piece them together? What does that look like? It's
1: a little closer to the second. We're both kind of, we're not great planners. I say that, though, but Sarah's been working on this, um, long clex piece that's going to be really wonderful and that's just necessarily required planning because it's like hundreds of pages long it's gonna be so good i hope people read it um, but with this one it's kind of like sometimes we'll work separately but sometimes we'll hop on the google docs at the same time and we'll have chat open and we'll just be talking about what should happen next it's like a writer's room that throwing ideas out there and uh, sometimes we'll be able both be just staring at the same scene and then you know i'll write a sentence or she will, and then we'll either erase it or think, what about this? What about this? And oh, yeah, 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 go for that. Go ahead and write, you know, th- throw that out there. Take a shot at that. And it's very, uh, kind of on the fly type writing. I mean, I might say, look, this is where I, I picture this scene going, and then I think this should happen and this should happen. And she'll be, like, oh, yeah, I like that. Or what What about this instead? Or uh, a lot of uh, collaboration and discussion. I think for this one, I ha- I kind of had. Like, she she would defer to me as far as the plot and stuff like that because it kind of started out as my idea. But, like, I'm helping her with little things in this Clex piece that she's writing. And she kind of lets me pitch in with the Bat because it involves the Bat family making appearances. And in those cases, she's like, oh, just whatever Jason would say or whatever Dick would say. So in that case, like, she knows the Super family better. I know the Bat family a little better. So that's really helpful when you're writing a story with both of them in play. Or she might write something and be like, What do you think about this? Would Jason say this? And it's like, of course it's like, What? Like, I'm not the expert on Jason, but between the two of us I I have more mental time thinking about him, so if that makes sense. But yeah. We're not real organized
0: about it. We just
1: kinda like, Yeah, you like that? Yeah, sure, why not? I loved that
0: that scene that she wrote though. Oh, I did too. That was actually one of my favorite scenes of the whole I, it's story. It's like the best
1: scene in there. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah, well, the first time that I read it, that was the only scene I could remember, you know? Was yeah. Because it stood out to it's me such so much. It's a human
1: moment. It's a very human moment. It and was. She she's so good at articulating, was. like, just this moment where a guy gets to see how Kyle sees him, and it's kind of beautiful, and he's like, oh 'cause Because, like, if I had tried to write that, I might have written it a little sweeter. But then she wrote the part where he's like, you know, I don't fucking like that, kind of. And it, I was like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. That's what Guy Gardner would do. And he just kind of throws a little tantrum, and yeah, um, it's, like, devastating, kind of, but it's very Guy Gardner. He has these, like, I- impulsive moments and these kind of angry little flare-ups that are very,
0: seem very Guy Gardner to me, anyway. Yeah. You know, we were talking a little bit before the show about themes from Jealous Guy, you know? And... The theme (laughs) that I globbed onto, (laughs) because it's one of my favorites, is that trope of a character not seeing themselves as physically attractive. It's not one that I think gets brought up a lot. I don't see it too much in fan fiction, but I do see it enough, right? Where I'm like, okay, this is a thing (laughs) that people do sometimes. And I didn't see it quite enough from the first time that I did the read through. But the second time that I did the read-through, I realized that Guy's perception of himself colors his whole perspective on the Kyle situation. You know, he kind of thinks he's just this ugly, homely guy. And that perception seems to color his entire perspective on Kyle and his own relationship with Kyle. Because because yeah, how could it possibly... Yeah, how could it have possibly been me? That called him back, like, of course, it was Sora, yeah. you know.
1: I, I was just thinking,
0: like, because, like, if you just read the old
1: comics, he's he's kind of a douchebag a little bit, anyway. Ultimately, lovable though. But yeah, if you, read, if you read the um, there's some issues. Guy Gardner actually had his own series, and there's like a four issue arc of called Year One, and it gave him, I think, for the first time, a much more empathetic background. It's a little heavy handed in that it, there's abuse in the household. His parents do not treat him well. He's got an older brother that's kind of a golden child who can do no wrong. And Guy is just kind of, he kind of, he's he's physically abused. He's slapped around by his dad. And his mom just kind of ignores him. Even though it's a little heavy handed, it like kind of helped me to make sense of a little bit about why he is the way he is. But then also, of course, explains, or at least would lead you to think that even though he's got an ego, there is a kind of a deep seated, low self esteem. And then we had talked about, too, like, he's not drawn as a pretty guy, at least not initially. Now, I think, like, Patrick Gleason actually kind of has a really nice, uh, I think he's a very handsomely drawn guy
0: in the newer issues. He is uh, now, but yes. I did have a chance to see, like, the earlier renditions with that, you know, no. with that crazy-ass bowl cut. And I was like, what the fuck is yeah.
1: this? Yeah, we talked about, if you look at, you know, like, how Jordan is the, the guy in Green Lantern World, at least classically. Uh, still is, by most any definition. And he's a uh, he's a beautiful human being. He's tall, he's athletic, uh, he's roguish, he's very masculine, and yet he's very pretty. And then Kyle's kind of a pretty boy. He was kind of the 90s version of a masculinity that could be a, like a little softer, I think, compared to the Hal Jordan. John Stewart's just kind of a badass, he's super intelligent. Guy Gardner's kind of a bruiser he's drawn that way too I think Sarah and I and Sarah really helped articulate that for me too that there's this theme in comics where everyone's just so pretty but most of us in real life uh, aren't that pretty or at least not that pretty right? Yeah, it's <laughs> right. a theme that like just doesn't get explored like what does it do to you when you don't think you're um, a very attractive person and everyone deals with this to a certain extent yeah but to consciously make that part of Guy Gardner was important to us and I'm currently writing another Guy Gardner-Kyle story that I'm excited about, and that's certainly part of it. Yeah, and it kind of has colored every relationship he's ever had, including... He did ha- he did have a girlfriend in canon, a really pretty girl named Ice. And that just didn't work out because I think he didn't know how to... It's like he doesn't know how to, um, I don't know, be comfortable with himself in a relationship with someone who he views as much more attractive,
0: maybe. That's kind of one take I'm looking at anyway. To me, that works so well because it's this deep-seated insecurity. And literally, there's like not a whole lot you can do about it. Your face is your face, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: you You could get a better haircut, maybe. But yeah, yeah, maybe get a better
0: haircut, (laughs) brush your teeth, you know, like there are things you can do, but there's only so much you can do, you know? And so like, ultimately, you're going to have to go through life with the face you got. That's just, you know, And so, yeah, like (laughs) that can sometimes I see that when I see that trope in fan fiction, I often do see the person who thinks they're ugly having a really hard time with being in relationships with other people that they would perceive as way more attractive than them. Because there's always that fear of like, well, if I'm not bringing a beautiful face to the table or a beautiful body to the table. Yeah, yeah. Why Why do you want me? What else
1: is there? What else is there? And
0: you're going to leave me for someone way more attractive than I am. I just know it. Yeah. And
1: you look at Kyle's girlfriends that he's had in there. I mean, it's comics, so they're all attractive women. But I think it actually works really well with Kyle because he's an artist and he, uh, he's got the eye for all kinds of beauty. And to me, you know, he's like, guy just adds uh, an intensity and he just li- he lives intensely and he's passionate he's not a liar. He tells the truth and he's, he doesn't bullshit really. I think Kyle respects that. I think too, like as an artist's eye for things, you find the beauty in things that might not be conventionally beautiful. At least that would be one interpretation you could take. And they're just like a fun pairing. I don't know.
0: Yeah. That's why I loved that scene. The one that Sarah wrote, because when he's there and he's drawing and that's where my mind went too, of like, Not only do other people have this ability to see in you what you cannot see for yourself, but him just having that artist background, you know, like you said, he can pick out the beauty in things that I'm sure Guy is is thinking like, you're crazy. like Why are you wasting your fancy pencils like drawing me, you know, and and here (laughs) Kyle thinks like, no, this is beautiful to me. Like, this was a moment that was beautiful. Don't you like it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And Guy's so offended (laughs) by it. He's like, why would you do this? Oh man, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: I was so glad you wrote that because it was better than I could have done, and and it, it was fun. And I like the last scene quite a bit too, with the apartment and uh, yes, Kyle just trying. It's like he thinks he knows the truth, but he's trying to pull it out of guy. And it's it's not like guys lying exactly, but he just he doesn't want to, you know. He because hardly admitted it to himself to me that. He, He does love Kyle, um, yeah. Because it's it's too painful to admit.
0: In a way, yes, yes. That pain of having to say it out loud when you are so sure that the other person's going to reject it. Yeah, you know, because how could they possibly want me? Yeah, that was just so. I felt so bad.
1: I think most of us have been there in some degree.
0: Yeah, right. You know, rejection (laughs) is very human. Yeah, right. That fear of rejection. But Kyle's just so sweet about it, you know? He's so gentle about pulling it out of him and then being like, well, yeah, it it actually does make a difference, you know? I love that part where Guy's like, does it even matter? Does any of this even matter? And Kyle's like, well, yeah, actually, it does. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um,
1: Yeah, that, that closing scene was fun. I hope it didn't seem too schizophrenic, but then once Guy realizes... Oh, he does, you know, then sort of the ego almost immediately shows itself just a little bit. And that's why it wasn't a line I had at first, but then I added, he knew he could do it. Like, there's that confidence again. Now that Kyle's kind of done all the work to say, hey, yeah, I'm in love with you too, you moron. Then Guy can be like, hey, you know what? I'm Guy fucking Gardner. Um, (laughs) There's actually a lot to love here. It's this weird balance of like, yes, deep-seated insecurities, but also, uh, you know, a little bit of that strut and bravado that we love, little braggadocio that makes guys so charismatic and and lovable for me anyway. Yeah.
0: Oh, and I love that that duality is in there. I love that because it is possible (laughs) to be both at the exact same time. I just, I love it. I love it. It's one of my favorite tropes. I wish that I saw it more in fan fiction. I agree. I agree. I will say, and I've been wanting to say this for a while, and it's just never really come up for me, but I think I told you before the show that I first encountered that trope in Harry Potter with the Severus Snape character. It comes up probably a lot more for Severus Snape because he's so super, like, hyper ugly, right? And so that's a thing that gets talked about. But, you know, I do see it come up in different fandoms here and there. And I just wanted to thank the fanfiction writers who do that and choose to explore that. And I want to thank you and Sarah for exploring that, too, because, like, (laughs) for me personally, like, that's been a huge part of my own journey in accepting myself. And I know that whole, like, you love yourself and, you know, everyone's beautiful and all that. And I, I agree with those sentiments. I do. It's easy to say it in the abstract. Yeah. Yeah. Easier said than done. Right. And I cannot tell you how beneficial those types of fan fictions have been for me doing that work for myself, you know.
1: Isn't, you think about it like the hero arcs and it's, it's kind of, it's easy to be a hero when you're, I mean, I shouldn't say easy, but it's easier maybe to be a hero when you, you know, you look really good.
2: <laughs> and everybody <laughs> already
1: kind of loves you. Right, right. And kind of, you look like a hero, you are a hero. I feel like this theme that we love with the self-image thing, it comes more in like either anti-heroes or, or anti-villains, you know, mad at the world because of how they look. But People who are still heroes and yet live with these insecurities. I think that is, yeah, a really underused trope, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A very meaningful one for a lot of us out there because, like you said, like that's such a universal human emotion, I think, that all of us at some point have had, right, of that yeah. feeling of insecurity about self-image and the way that we look and comparing ourselves to other yes. people and all that. I always love to see that explored absolutely in fan fiction. So thank you to all of you who write about that because it's very near and dear to me personally. Now, I wanted to leave some time at the end so that you could shout out other fan fiction writers if you would like to go ahead and do that.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a a lot that I just I'm not going to remember, but I did have like a small list. I did just want to say hello to my friend Space Capes. Elle is such a positive and integral member of the j community. I know that I'm not the only one that she proofreads stuff for, and it has all kinds of positive feedback. Um, she's such a friendly, wonderful person, and she is a writer, so you can look her up at Space Cape, She's. I think she's got a wonderful take on Dick Grayson. She's got a story called Five Times Valentine's, I think, that she gifted to me, so it's very dear to my heart. If you're interested in Guy Kyle, you might check out two authors called Perpet Fick and Merely Mine. If you filter for kudos, you're going to find them near the top because they're really wonderful. I'll link you to that J. Dick AOB fic. Oh, I did write it down. It's called A Funny Thing by Maury Mitar. Wincest, Go to Candleback. And then there was a recent one titled Baton Rouge by an author called Elsie. There was a Christmas fic I really wanted to shout out called uh, Twas the Groundhog Day Before Christmas by an author called Poison Ivory. It's actually none of the people. It's DC Comics. It's Booster golden and Blue Beetle. It's like the most wholesome pairing in DC Comics, I feel like. They're like such... Bro- it's such a bromance, so there are some that pair them romantically. And it is like a Groundhog Day type thing. It's so well written, and it's like so wholesome and wonderful. It's happy ending, so... Anything by Fabula Rossa. I should say anything. You should read the Triangles pick by Sarah. Toy Shark, 2005. She did that Clex and Lois story recently. If you're interested in polyamory and I didn't think I was, but she does so good in that story. it's so well written. It's like based on this really goofy ad campaign that Smallville put out back in the day, and they showed three characters and the the ad byline or line on there was like triangles have three sides. And you're like, do they know what they're talking about? Because it would have, like, like Clark and Lana and Lex on it. Yeah. And
0: it's like,
1: yeah, it does have three sides. So one of those sides would be Clark and Lex. Like, do you know? This was, like, the CW's ad campaign. It wasn't, like, a meme. It's so funny. I think she links it in the story. So she does this, like, a realistic take on how, like, Clark and Lex and Lois might come together and it's really fabulously written it's about family and actually like you you see what works so well with Clark and Lex you see what works so well with Clark and Lois and you really see what works so well with Lex and Lois shouldn't be a surprise but it works so well and it brings like Connor and John Kent into the same family which is like I've always wanted to do cuz Connor's always kind of thrown out the window with right Um, yeah like by the real son like now john kent's superman and you're like what the fuck happened to connor like oh he's in the suicide squad why anyway that's (laughs) his rant for another day but read triangles by story shark 2005 you will not be disappointed there's too many j dick for me to name too many friends to shout out but there's a lot of good stuff i i've bookmarked a lot through my account if you're curious so you could always do that
0: perfect thank you so much for those Elise 51, do you have any last words for us?
1: No, I would just say, be kind to each other. Thank you so much for having me. I know I've kept you talking for like over two hours now, but I've really enjoyed it personally. So you've let me talk about myself for two hours. I love
0: that. (laughs) Oh, I am so, so happy that you've come on. You've been on my radar for quite some time here. (laughs) So I am so tickled and pleased that you are going to be the first episode that debuts for Fanfic Maverick in 2022. So, like, you know, it it had to be you. It had to be. So uh, thank you so much (laughs) for coming on the show and giving us your time today. Check out her stories on AO3. Give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.